Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Michael Deacon, Michael, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon. Whoa, what's going on? Somebody in my house right now? That, um, that Michael Deacon, he, he had the nerve, both, he had the nerve to comment on some of my, on some of my posts on my damaging Kali Kambada's page. So you need Michael, he says you need Michael Deacon if you're going to have a Michael on. Listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, place where you don't feel so alone. Let us chase away light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. My guest is not quite my guest. He has become an official, unofficial host. Joining me this evening is a longtime favorite, a man who needs no introduction, truly. The professor is here live and direct, the one and only James Fetzer. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Don't forget, you two can get involved. That number is 760-332-8724. One more time, 760-332-8724. Truly, don't be afraid this time. You have something on your mind. You are invited to call in. Jim, how are you? Oh, Michael, uh, delighted, delighted to be with you again. I'm... uh... Looking at a story here about it being Mueller time. You may remember that Miller commercial. It said, if you've got the time, we got the beer. Now it's Mueller time. There was that earlier country and Western. You know, I got the money, honey, if you got the time. Well, it's Mueller. It's Mueller time. And uh, the liberals, the left wing is melting down, Michael, because there, it was a great big nothing burger. I mean, it's absolutely stunning because they believe their own propaganda anyone and for more than two years i've been reporting that the whole russia hoax was a scam yeah where we had two investigative journalists who in their book shattered published in in 2017 had reported how robbie book and john podesta had introduced the russia hoax within 24 hours of hillary's concession speech to distract from the incompetent campaign they had run from the contents of WikiLeaks, which led to Pedagate Pet, Pet, or right. Pizzagate, where John Podesta himself appears to be pedophile in chief. And believe me, if if you have any doubts about it, it's all for real. Joaquin Hagopian has been doing a brilliant job of publishing a series of articles that are going to make a fantastic book about it. I have given lectures and presentations about it. It's all real. It's all extremely sordid. And I can assure you that Hillary Clinton was very deeply involved in all of that. But what the what's happened now is that all the propaganda that the left wing has been promoting, they 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 they've led their followers to believe it. 
So, you know, being totally uncritical and not realizing it was all fabricated. I mean, anyone with a serious interest knows it was Seth Rich, an IT guy working for the DNC who downloaded the files directly from the server in the Eastern time zone with the assistance of Kim.com. And then they were transferred to Julian Assange by way of Craig Murray, who was UK ambassador to Uzbekistan. I mean, all this is really rather well known to anyone who's taken a serious interest. And over and beyond all of that, you have Greg Jarrett with a completely brilliant book called The Russia Hoax, which is very clearly written, very thoroughly documented, meticulously laid out to leave no doubt about it being a sham. And yet you have, get this, Chris Matthews. Why was there never an interrogation of Trump? How can Mueller let him off the hook, you know, as though there were a hook to let him off? MSNBC's Chris Matthews said it's startling that there were no indictments following the conclusion of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigations. Matthews questioned why there was no interrogation of President Trump following the announcement that Mueller submitted his report to the Attorney General Friday. Why was there never an interrogation, as President Matthews asked? We were told for weeks by experts you cannot deal with an obstruction of justice charge or investigation without getting to motive. You cannot get to motive unless you hear it from the person himself who is being targeted, a subject of the investigation. But there was nothing there. It was a great big nothing burger. Tucker, who I regard as having the only television program worth watching, has, has observed that there have to be consequences for those who have claimed this Russian collusion if, in fact, the report shows there was none. And the report is showing there was none. They're clamoring, they're clamoring for the release of the Mueller report. I got to tell you, uh, Michael, Trump has played this so beautifully because he's, of course, concurring and let the people see the Mueller report. It's going to show he was involved in collusion. <laughs> I, I think I think we're we're seeing the re-election of Donald Trump at the hands of the Democratic Party. It's pretty interesting how all this turned out, and of course, for the longest time, uh, you were saying these things that this was not going to be anything; that this was all some sort of fabrication. Absolutely, and it turns out to have been there was a hard core in the Department of Justice and the FBI. We're talking Andrew McKay. We're talking James Comey. We're talking. Uh, Peter Stroke, uh, Lisa Page. Uh, uh, it looks as though Hillary Clinton and, and Loretta Lynch were involved in this. Uh, Hillary, no doubt. John Brennan, I have no doubt. Uh, and it was all with collusion where this segment of the Department of Justice and the FBI was virtually bought and paid for by Hillary Clinton. In fact, uh, this fellow Christopher Steele, uh, the MI6 agent, right. dumb, dumbfounded a British court, uh, this is about two months ago, when he testified under oath that he had written the infamous Russian dossier as an employee of Hillary Clinton. I mean, the judge was just gobsmacked. Yes, and Jim, I forgot to mention this. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We'll we'll talk about some of the things I'm doing that are so great <laughs> yes. as we proceed. Because you know, as the, the the process server said when she delivered me this lawsuit over Sandy Hook. Oh yes, by Leonard Posner. She said, "I've never seen anyone so happy to be sued." <laughs> I know you are like a child in a candy store. Michael, it's like that. And I'm going to I'm going to talk about some of the more recent developments. 
but but there's a transition here uh, between between uh, the Mueller uh, falling flat and uh, Sandy Hook, and and that is represented by New Zealand. Yes, this is very strange. This is, yeah, ridiculous beyond belief. I mean, I've been interviewing people right and left, only Dama Guard, uh, Greg Hallett, uh, uh, my, my good friend uh, who does uh, Army PSYOPs, uh, Scott Bennett has done an interview. Uh, I've done my own show, actually, more than one about it, and there's nothing there's nothing to it. It was totally fraudulent. Right now, if you go to my blog, you'll see a recent from uh, Dr. Eelwood, who has done so much sensational work on Sandy Hook. In fact, before I edited the book, she on her Fellowship of the Minds blog, which I highly recommend, had already published 80, 80, 80 articles about Sandy Hook before I edited the book in 2015. I mean, I would published 30, but she put me... You know, left me in the dust having published 80. Well, she's got an absolutely brilliant piece in here about how we know that this uh, this video was CGI. Yes, we'll talk and about that it, for sure. Yeah, she, she's, she's, she's got it nailed down. Uh, Greg Hallett wrote some very interesting things about it in, in relation to his uh, blog, but there's also more to come. And I just... I just recommend going there, uh, checking out uh, Dr. Ewan's blog, and you'll see, I mean, how totally superficial all of this is. Oh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, we'll we'll get into that in a moment, but I just wanted to quickly say definitely trouble from down under, of course, but before we jump into the latest news, I'd like to do this every now and then with you, Jim, just to give you know the newer listeners out there some further context in regards of who you are and some of your personal interests, Jim. Uh, new listeners will draw curiosity about your personal motivation and pursuit for the truth. So I just wanted to quickly say, Jim, do you have any recollection when you started to really connect the dots and realize there was something beyond the official narrative, per se? With regard to... Any of these issues, any of these false flags? I mean, you know, I got into this by way of JFK because, you you know, he was really the first president that I admired. I graduated from Princeton in 1962 uh, as a magna cum laude in philosophy. I had the benefit of doing my undergraduate thesis for the most influential philosopher of science in the world among professional philosophers, Carl G. Hempel. Um, Karl Popper, to whom I would dedicate my first book, has been more influential among natural scientists. And Thomas Kuhn, who actually was in the history department at Princeton amongst social scientists. But uh, I, when I entered the Marine Corps, I was commissioned at graduation and served four years including two years at the recruit depot in San Diego, supervising the first year recruit training with 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command. And that turned out to be of great value subsequently because it's the same recruit depot for Lee Oswald took his training. So I knew, for example, he'd never been trained to use a bolt-action rifle like this Manlicker Carcano he was alleged to have used. He was never taught to fire at a moving target or to shoot from a building, that he was a mediocre shot who 
had qualified in 1957 with a 212. That's not bad. I fired 212 myself on a 250-point scale, which would have made him a, a sharpshooter in the three classifications of marksman, sharpshooter, and expert. But then the year following, he didn't qualify at all, which was very, very odd because it violates a standing order that in the Marine Corps that every every officer from the commandant of the Marine Corps to the lowest private has to qualify at the rifle range every single year. So the fact that Lee hadn't qualified told me he'd been on some kind of special assignment that made him exempt, probably learning Russian at Monterey, where the military has very sophisticated language courses. And then the following year, qualified with a 191. That's barely qualifying. You have to shoot a 190 to to be uh, qualified. And if you're not qualified, you're in deep trouble in the Marine Corps. That was probably a gift given by uh, to him by those who were working in the bots. He had a reputation for missing the target completely, in which case they wave a flag known as Maggie's Drawer so that Oswald is as Oliver Stone picked up and mentioned in his film, JFK got a lot of Maggie's drawers. He was a terrible shot. And there's no evidence he'd practiced marksmanship in the meanwhile. And by the time uh, he reached the Texas School Book Depository just a few weeks before the event, the motorcade right. came by, uh, you know, there's no telling how bad a shot he could have been. But brilliant work by, by Ralphson Kay, who's a chiropractor. He founded the Oswald Innocence Campaign. He had uh, directed my attention to how we could figure out the identity of a man in the doorway captured in a famous photograph taken by James I. Galchin, the AP photographer, based on the height, the weight, the build, the shirt, the T-shirt, which were virtually indistinguishable. I mean, a little blurry, but virtually indistinguishable from the height, the weight, the build, the shirt, the T-shirt Lee was wearing when he was arrested. But Larry Rivera has, has cinched the deal by developing overlays, photo overlays that enabled him to create superpositions that showed that the man in the doorway whose identity has been much disputed. I mean, Harold Wein, uh, Weinberg, who published a whole series of books called Whitewash in his second uh, photographic whitewash in the last few pages and talked about how the Warren Commission staff was going crazy trying to conceal the fact that Oswald had been in the doorway. Well, indeed, Larry cinched it. We already knew he was there. But that meant, of course, that he not only cannot have been the lone demanded gunman, but cannot have been one of the shooters, where I've identified six. Only Domingard, a seventh, and now we know there was an eighth shooter. Uh, it's really fascinating because right. it confirms to my conjecture that each of the different groups who were sponsoring the assassination had put up their own gunman. There was a, a, a Dallas deputy sheriff. There was a Dallas police officer tied to the CIA. There was an Air Force expert. There was uh, Lyndon Johnson's personal hitman. There was uh, a guy tied in with the CIA who was uh, kind of a soldier of fortune. There was an anti-Castro Cuban. Then these two additional, all only identified was from a Toronto crime family tied in with a bomb foot. So that would have been an Israeli shooter. So and that leaves one other mm -hmm. behind a tree on the South Knoll who David W. Mantic, MD, PhD, who's the leading expert on medical evidence in uh, his most recent presentations, has concluded that Jack was actually hit a third time in the head from from the left side. If you're looking at the limousine from behind, 
that Jack was hit in the after the driver, William Greer, brought the limousine to a halt to make sure he'd be killed. He was hit in the back of the head by a shot fired from the Dow Tex by the anti-Castro Cuban. He slumped forward, Jack eased him back up. And he was hit virtually simultaneously, it appears, in both the left and the right temple. The right temple by uh, Frank Sturgis, a soldier of fortune, was fired from the intersection of the triple underpass and the picket fence. And then this other, to me, heretofore unidentified, I mean, I can give you the names of the others, but not this guy. It was behind a tree, a very isolated tree, actually, but I've now seen two photographs, one from Rick Russo and one from Ben Tatro, where you can see the gunman coming out from behind the tree and his rifle is very obvious. Yes. Well, what, I, what, what I'm saying is when I was in the Marine Corps, I was stationed in the Far East for 13 months, not in Vietnam, but we were anchored out in Kaohsiung Harbor. When the, when the uh, officer of the deck, who happened to be the executive officer of the mortar battery, of which I was at the time the fire direction officer, awakened me at 3.30 to tell me the president had been shot. So that was the and moment for you that kind of woke you up. Well, it, it, it was 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, 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 it literally woke you up. <laughs> That's amazing. And then an hour later, he came back and told me they caught the guy, then he was a communist. I thought then that was pretty fast work. Well, of course, it was too fast work. I mean, it was completely contrived. It turns out the, uh, the arrest record on Lee Oswald is timed at 140, but he wasn't actually arrested until 150. <laughs> and, it, and, and the arrest record says this man shot and killed President John F. Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly. And then it adds he also shot and killed Officer J.E. Tim. This is the arrest they sure, record. They sure and knew a lot it's, quickly. It's, it's composed before they even arrested him at the Texas Theater. He had, he had nothing to do with Tippett. But the, the fact of the matter is when I returned to the U.S., I began following the JFK case and ah. would eventually get drawn into it seriously in 1962, when, in fact, I mentioned David Mantic. I, I had been uh, troubled because the Journal of the American Medical Association had published interviews with the two naval officers who conducted the autopsy with, uh, they were joined subsequently by an Army officer who was the only one of the three, by the name of Pierre Fink, oddly enough who was the only one of the three, this is James Humes and T. T Thornton Boswell, who had never conducted an autopsy on a gunshot victim before. They were, they were picked for their incompetence and their malleability, their deference to authority. So, I mean, uh, 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 when I discovered a letter in the Journal of the American Medical Association written by this fellow who was complaining about the AMA using the journal for political purposes by publishing interviews, uh, as though they were science, when they, as though they were new information, when actually the same content had been presented by the same sources in previous interviews. He actually would wind up resigning from the AMA, but I wrote him a letter and suggested we collaborate on a long article or a book, and that was David W. Mantic, and we went from there. That was 1962. But in the meanwhile, I resigned my commission as a captain in 1968, went to Indiana, and did my Ph.D. with a second uh, leading philosopher of science, uh, Wesley Salmon, and then began an academic career, my first position in Kentucky, where I received the first Distinguished Teaching Award presented by the student government to first time they'd done it to one out of 135 assistant professors. It was supposed to contribute to tenure, but... I published too much, and I was too outspoken. Oh. I was giving talks in all these different departments. I think it was probably historic. I gave something like 16 talks to 
eight, eight different departments, something on that order at the university. I mean, it was indicative of my interdisciplinary background, having a degree in the history and the philosophy of science and having had such wonderful training in philosophy. But uh, uh, so Kentucky, uh, instead of uh, guaranteeing my tenure, it worked the opposite way around. And they gave me the boot. Virginia immediately hired me as a visiting associate, who was at the time the leading public university in the United States. I, I subsequently taught at Cincinnati, got an NSF, and wrote my first book, which is the one I, I dedicated to Karl Popper. Uh, then I wound up teaching at Chapel Hill for a year, another great American university, well, would wind up at New College of the University of South Florida, just a wonderful little college on Sarasota Bay, where they only had 400 students and 40 faculty. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, I was filling in for a fellow who was supposed to never return. It looked like it was going to work out until he returned. So I wound up actually had this 10 years as a itinerant philosopher having to find a job from year to year and it was very time consuming i'd be oh yeah i mean well i was making 50 or 60 applications a year uh, and, and in fact this uh friend of mine uh when i was you know no longer uh, able to continue at new college contacted me to tell me it was going to go into a program for phds in philosophy and, and linguistics at wright state in uh, ohio uh, in computer science and artificial intelligence. And uh, he said, he told me later, he never thought in the world that I'd do it, but I realized I need to do something different. And I entered the program and it made a huge, huge difference because the year before I entered the program, I'd had seven interviews at the Eastern APA, which is the principal job market for philosophers, all for junior positions. When I entered the program the following year, I had seven interviews at the Eastern APA, all for senior positions, and I was hired as a full professor with tenure on the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota. And it was so emancipating. When I was hired uh, uh, at Duluth, I had only three books. In the first few years, I published like 16 books. I mean, it was just spectacular to have me unleashed from having to find a position from year to year. In 1996, the University of Minnesota introduced a new rank for uh, full professors who had made what they regarded as uh, major contributions to enhance the reputation of the University of Minnesota while they were members of the faculty. And I was one of the first 10 selected for that and received the, the title, which I have always thought was fantastic. Distinguished McKnight University professor, so that to this day now, although I retired in 2006 after a 35-year career, the last 19 on the campus of the University of Minnesota in Duluth, I'm Distinguished McKnight University Professor Emeritus. And it seemed to me, I'd already organized several conferences. The university was very supportive. I published three major collections of expert studies on JFK, the first called Assassination Science, 1998, Murder in Dealey Plaza, 2000, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax, 2003, where I was uh, first to organize a symposium on the authenticity of the whole movies at the invitation of George Michael Avika, who was at the time the program chair for the JFK Lancer Conference in Dallas in 1996. So I brought together 
oh, like 15 of the best people doing the best work and then selected uh, about eight, as I recall, to actually make the symposium presentation. And it really was quite sensational because you had a lot of old timers who were trying to claim that the film was authentic when, in fact, it's it's really cleverly done. But I, I estimate today it's 487 frames. Jeez. And, 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 and based on multiple sources, including a fellow by the name of John P. Costello is also a Ph.D., uh, with his specialty in electromagnetism, he did a brilliant tutorial on the Zapruder film and the internal indications of fakery, which include that they had to take out the stem and three-way sign. It had a hole through the sign, and that was inconsistent with the three shots from behind. And when they put the sign back in, when they reconstituted the film, they put it in improperly. So that was discernible. They They took out, because of the two shots I was talking about, they couldn't leave that in, so they merged the shot from behind. You just have one frame of the head going forward, and with a, he actually slumped to the left. He just slumped to the left gradually, but they took out so many frames that looked violent to the left and back. In fact, many who, almost everyone who views a film for the first time thinks this is just stunning proof of a shot fired from the right front. And of course, it was proof of a shot fired from the right front, but it was a an artifact of the way in which the film had been edited by taking out too many frames. In fact, Larry rediscovered interviews that had been done with the four motorcycle escort officers who confirmed the limousine stop and talked about a host of other activities that had taken place. Where the officer to the left rear, for example, parked his bike, ran between the two limousines because they were motionless. Up to the grassy knoll from which they believed the shot had been fired, Officer Douglas Jackson on the right motored up the grassy knoll. We even have photographs where you can see the marks from the motorcycle going up the hill and witnesses who reported it at the time, though it seemed incredible that that should happen. Five agents got out of the Secret Service limo, support, sur surrounded the JFK. One took a chunk of skull from a little boy, threw it back in. Uh, I now surmise that between all those films that they took out and compressed, that the original would have run about a thousand frames. In other words, we're missing more frames from the original than we have available today. But all this launched me into, you know, profound concern about yes. the government capitalizing on stories where they had a political benefit to gain from the official narrative. And uh, uh, while I was still at uh, the University of Minnesota, we had the plane crash that, that took down Senator Paul Wellstone, who was an icon. I mean, this man was the conscience of the Senate. It turned out he'd been threatened by Dick Cheney, that if he were to oppose uh, the administration on Iraq, that there'd be severe ramifications for him personally and for the state of Minnesota. Well, they took out the plane. It crashed just 60 miles north of my office. I would wind up flying John Costello from Australia here, because it, we had enough circumstantial evidence to conclude the plane had been taken up by creating an electromagnetic field that popped all the computerized components on the plane that included the navigational system, communications, put, flipped the props below idle. That was one of the oddities of the crash, that the props were below idle, which meant, you know, it couldn't remain in the air very long. It had a pretty good glide ratio, meaning how far it can travel horizontally for each unit it drops vertically. But it was destined to come down. The key to the whole event turns out to have been manipulating the GPS, which heretofore no one had believed was even possible. 
to lure it into the kill zone, which was situated about two miles south of the airport in a wooded area, where one of the locals saw this white van hightailing it out at high speed. I mean, this is a rustic area. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. But it was the kill team there with their weapon that were getting getting out. Oh, I, I would publish a book about it entitled American Assassination with Don Foreros Jacobs, who was a Native American scholar, then with Northern Arizona University. But but when, you know, now I organize lots of conferences and so forth. But after my retirement, you know, when things started to develop that didn't look right, it drew me back in. And, of course, the first and most notorious, I suppose you could say, was Sandy Hook. Sure. Not, nothing about Sandy Hook added up. And now I'm engaged with, in this lawsuit with one of the fake Sandy Hook parents who calls himself Leonard Posner. Well, the very same Dr. Ewan I was praising before, who done 80 published 80 articles before I edited the book, had done a national search with two different search engines, and, and they cannot turn up anyone in the United States by the name of Leonard Posner, and yet that's the name of the party, the plaintiff who's suing me. I mean, it's a monstrous fraud. I'll say more about it at, at your pleasure. But I got to tell you, this, this, uh, there's a tie with this New Zealand, and what I like about New Zealand is it's so obviously fraudulent. And the, where the PM is moving so fast to take our guns that if you're paying any attention at all, you realize, whoa, well, that's the reason they fake these events so they can take our guns. Yes, let's let's yeah. jump into that. But before we do, I just wanted to quickly ask you, since it's a question that gets brought up every now and then, uh, people have been wondering if you are affiliated to any political party. Well, I regard myself as an independent, but in the past, my I found the best candidates. I mean, I, I would have described myself as a JFK, FDR Democrat. I believe in the social safety network, right, right. social security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, Bergman's confrontation, and all that. Uh, I found myself voting for the Democratic candidates uh, in virtually every election up until uh, Trump versus Hillary. And indeed, I voted for Bill Clinton twice. I voted for Barack Obama twice. Uh, and in part, that was a function, of course, of their opposition, because they were running against very mediocre candidates. I mean, John McCain, give me a break, for example. <laughs> yes, John so, McCain. <laughs> so, but, but it turns out Barack Obama really, truly, just as Trump said, w wasn't even qualified to run for president. It turns out Howard Dean and Nancy Pelosi and a lot of other bigwigs of the Democratic Party knew knew that he was unqualified, but concealed it from the American people. And of course, you found Trump uh, attacked again and again for being a, a birther. And, and you find nowadays the news always say, you know, falsely alleging that he wasn't qualified, wasn't born in the United States. But it's not false. It's perfectly true. I did my own research on it. I had a guy who was an expert on uh, birth certificates. We went through the Hawaiian document. It was clearly fabricated. In fact, there's some similarities to the Hawaiian birth certificate that we find in the Noah Posner death certificate, which is also a fabrication. But over and beyond that, I found what appears to be his authentic birth certificate, Obama, from Kenya. It's got his footprint. So clearly, in order to create confusion, they produce a, another Kenyan birth certificate that's clearly a fabrication. It's got, you know, signatures by authorities who were in office at the time. So that if you bring up the Kenyan birth certificate, 
they'll say, oh, yeah, but that's been debunked. Well, the yeah, one has, get, but the other hasn't. People, I mean, get really, just, people get really angry when you when you mention that, the whole birth but, but certificate. It, but, it's, but it's true. There's they get no real reason. angry. You know, I can tell them other things that are equally true that may make them even more angry, and I'm sure <laughs> I will be glad I will do that. But let me say, here's another claim yes. that Trump made that was debunked at the time was perfectly true, that Ted Cruz's father was on the periphery of the JFK assassination. It was Ted Cruz. I do a weekly show with Larry Rivera and Gary King, the new JFK show. And when the allegations came up, we immediately zoomed in on the photographs and we have video of Lee in front of the trademark in New Orleans. And indeed, it was Ted Cruz's father, Rafael Cruz, who was there with Lee handing out fair play for Cuba pamphlets. But but irony of ironies over and beyond that, I mentioned my first book, Assassination Science, who has got a wonderful, classic, very familiar color photograph taken by a, a Dallas uh, news photographer. And in to the right, I mean, this is the cover of my own book. There is Rafael Cruz with Antonio Vesiena, who is the founder of Alpha 66, which is one of the most vicious of all the anti-Castro organizations. So right on my cover of my own book. Now, I, I tell you for a certainty, the improbability of the same guy being in those two locations at those two crucial moments when Lee was handing out these pamphlets in New Orleans to create his persona as a pro-Castro communist super uh, sympathizer and being on Main Street just blocks away from Dealey Plaza the day Jack's taken out. That means he was on the periphery. He actually departed the United States, went to Cuba for, I mean, to Canada to be secure from the reach of U.S. authorities in case they put two and two together. But but those are just two very straightforward examples. Here's a third, the Mueller report. Trump said there wasn't any collusion. Well, I've been reporting on it for years. There was no collusion. I documented in spades. I've got a two-hour video out there called the, the, the Russia Hoax Comes Apart at the Seams. So if you want to go through the whole thing in detail, you can find it there. There's a third where Trump is right and the rest are wrong. And this thing with Obama is embarrassingly bad. In fact, it turns out this uh, prime minister of New Zealand, and I was fairly taken aback, just like Michelle Obama has a package that most women do not have. I mean, it's just stunning. We knew from the physician, Michelle Obama's former physician, who reported that he'd walked in on her or him taking a leak standing up oh in a trailer God. in Trenton, and that he want, he was paid millions to not talk about it, but that he felt they'd done so much damage to the country he could no longer avoid speaking out, that there are a lot of people who think that Michelle Obama was a man who had a sex transformation surgery, but that's false. Michelle Obama is a man amazing. with breast implants. So, so it's amazing uh, Michael, we have these votes on who are the most admired man and woman in the world, and it's Barack and Michelle Obama. Wow. So the most admired woman in America is a man with breast implants. <laughs> My goodness. Well, we definitely have jumped into the twilight zone. Uh, seriously. And so, so you see, well, here's the thing. Uh, it was a joke among the Obamas. You know, he, she, they would be getting off a plane. And the, the wind would blow her dress up against her body, and you'd see her package. Uh, he even gave talks in front of the Joint Chiefs. We have referred to her as Michael. 
because that was her name. Her name was Michael Robinson. She played football Isn't at Oregon weird? State before she transferred to Princeton and adopted a female persona and began to only um, Michelle. It's interesting you say that because if I recall correctly, Obama did say something about that in, in an interview about referring to her as Michael. Well, it's no accident. He knew her as Michael. We have photographs of them when they were dating before she had breast implants. Oh, my. Uh, uh, look, I don't talk about these things if I haven't done my homework. I could give you an hour presentation with slides and you would have no doubt about it. But what's interesting is that this woman in New Zealand, just walking up the hallway, you see her dress is coming back and she has a package just like Michelle. It was particularly revealing when Michelle was on the Ellen DeGeneres show and they were doing some kind of dancing <laughs> and she was wearing uh, you know, a pantsuit. I recall actually, that, yes. The body, yeah. And it's clear, you know, that she had a this swinging package, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there it was. I, I don't know why Amazing. we can't face up to the truth. Some of these things are so bloody elementary. You know, it's like the Democrats now are promoting the idea that you're not even a boy or a girl at birth based on your biological equipment, but you get to choose whether you're a boy or a girl. Well, I think this kind of nonsense began with the Obamas because they were so self-conscious about their own peculiar status. In fact, Joan Rivers was actually interviewed and asked, did you think we'd ever have a gay president? And she said, well, you know, we've already got that with Obama and Michelle. She's a tranny. We all know. But in fact, she wasn't really identifying her quite as precisely as did the former physician. In fact, another student actually found the parents of the two girls, and the older girl looks just like her father, and the younger just like her mother. And of course, since two men cannot have children, they are not the offspring of Brock and Michelle Obama. Yes, very unusual the way that played out. And um, let's go into... The trouble down under and uh, New Zealand, of course, the prime minister there announced a ban on all assault rifles following the mass shooting. And of course, this has set off a wave of college professors now claiming that you shouldn't be... Well, actually, that actually ties into something else I was going to mention here. But yeah, now professors are, are trying to make that argument that, you know, you shouldn't be able to speak badly about certain groups like the Muslims, and it's it's kind of um, unusual to see that. And also, I was going to say, I do have a clip of uh, Chelsea Clinton being attacked, but we could play that a little well, later here. Ch Chelsea, of course, the idea of her running for president is simply ridiculous. But on the other hand, she's no more harebrained than Kirsten Gillibrand, for example, uh, I think that Kamala Harris has a slightly higher IQ, but she boffed her way into prominence with Willie Brown, who gave her two plumb positions and supported her to become attorney general. I mean, these are not serious candidates for the presidency of the United States. And Elizabeth Warren, of course, did herself in with all of her, her DNA tests about her Indian ancestry, claiming she'd never capitalized on it when it turns out she had. In fact, we found a, 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 a an application I don't recall if it was for Harvard, where she wrote in her own handwriting that she was of American Indian origin, when it turned out that she had one 1,024th Indian ancestry, which is less than the average American. So, you know, this is very, very unfortunate. I thought Elizabeth Warren seemed like a perfectly decent person, but she was, in fact, uh, promoted by Harvard as the first member of the law school faculty that was a woman of color, and it was just a sham. 
So, you know, the Democrats are having a hard time finding a bona fide or legitimate candidate. Uh, this Beto O'Rourke is being pronounced, but, uh, you know, by some, but he's never won a race. I mean, and it turns out he has some kind of uh, dubious background involving criminal activities that's been suppressed, too. I mean, the, the Democrats are really, in my opinion, totally lost. And I'll guarantee you one thing for a certainty. Uh, uh, the Second Amendment is so fundamental to the security of the nation that if any candidate who is for gun control, in my opinion, has disqualified themselves from being taken seriously as a candidate because they are betraying the principles on which this country was founded. And, and I'm therefore happy to say that we have some signs of life in the United States, that the, the Missouri Senate, for example, has voted to nullify federal gun control by 23 to 10. In other words, they, th this Senate bill would ban the state from enforcing virtually all federal gun control measures and, and includes criminal charges for federal agents attempting to violate the right to keep and bear arms in Missouri. Remember, the Second Amendment states very baldly that the right of the citizens to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, all these laws they're passing right and left do nothing but infringe. So here's what I regard as the most promising current development right now taking place here. Second Amendment sanctuary cities, counties, and states are springing up all across the country. I mean, we know all about these uh, illegal alien sanctions where they won't allow the feds to enforce the laws. And California, I think, has declared itself to be a sanctuary state. Well, we now have a whole host of counties and cities and even states, including, um, let's see, Alaska, uh, Idaho, and Kansas that are sanctuary, Second Amendment sanctuary states, where laws against, uh, you know, the keeping and bearing arms cannot be enforced. In Colorado, 23 out of 64 counties have adopted Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. Uh, we, we have m m many more. We have New Mexico. When New Mexico's new Democratic go governor, another Michelle, Michelle Luan Grisham, was sworn into office, on January 1st, Democrats rushed to expand gun control, but those bills were met with resistance. So the 33 sheriffs in the state, of 33 sheriffs, 29 have disapproved of the package of anti-gun legislation. Even in New York, after the New York Safe Act was passed in 2013, uh, we now have uh, 50, 52 out of 62 counties with resolutions in opposition. In North Carolina, uh, we have a, a similar event. We even have it in Oregon with uh, a lesser number, where 13 of the 36 counties in Oregon have adopted Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. This is very significant. But let me let let me make the following observation too. Bernie Sanders thinks U.S. should follow New Zealand's lead in mass gun confiscation. I can't tell you how shattering this was of any illusions I had lingering over Bernie right. Sanders. When, that, was, when the, um, that was something I was going to ask you since you were talking about um, these candidates for 2020. And I was going to mention how Bernie Sanders has been saying that we should follow New Zealand's lead and it's, uh, ban it's, assault it's, weapons. It, look, I, I've said this elsewhere. I mean, it, in the baldest possible way, language, Bernie Sanders is a moron. Anyone who thinks that the people benefit from 
being unable to defend themselves is really incapable of serious thought. A cartoon, a nice cartoon, captures it. Yeah, Ben Franklin giving a lecture, and he's pointing to a poster, and he said, we founders call this one the theory of duh, which says disarming innocent people does not protect innocent people. In fact, you've heard me, I'm sure, explain yes. before mm -hmm. that worldwide studies show that the proposition the Democrats are pushing, and remember, I say this as someone who used to be a regular Democratic right. voter. That's true. Uh, they, they, they maintain that the more guns, the more gun violence. But the situation is precisely the opposite worldwide. Gun ownership and homicide rates are inversely related. So that in North America, for example, where the U.S. and Canada have the highest gun ownership in the world, they also have the lowest homicide rate. In Latin and South America, Brazil especially, they have low gun ownership, high homicide rates. In Africa, low gun ownership, high homicide rates. Russia, low gun ownership, high homicide rates. In fact, I did an interview with uh, John B. Wells that may be broadcast tonight. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah, uh, where he and I were discussing this point. He said, yes, and in, in Dallas and Fort Worth, when they passed concealed carry, the crime rate went to practically zero. How can Bernie Sanders not look at Chicago, which is our pilot case, and recognize that it's because uh, the ordinary citizen isn't allowed to be armed, that there's a free fire zone for the criminals who aren't going to give up their guns in, regardless. I mean, taking all the weapons away from law-abiding citizens only creates free fire zones for the perps who aren't going to give up their guns anyway. So it was stupid from the beginning. What I like about New Zealand, therefore, is this is so blatant, this is so obvious that you have this completely staged, contrived event, and I, you know, I've been dealing with a, do a, a half a dozen or more experts on this, all of whom are convergent. That was totally fraudulent, completely fake. You've got this wonderful blog by Dr. Ewood on my blog now. Don't go to jamesfetzer.org. I think it's the second or the third most recently posted where she's offering proof after proof that the whole thing was CGI. And, yes. and I mean, she's 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 got it right. Hold on, though, Jim. Right. One moment, though, before we, we jump a little bit ahead. I just wanted to quickly uh, get your measure on, on who exactly might be able to actually pull ahead of, of a Joe Biden, of all people, who seems to be leading the Democratic field currently right now. I did want your take on that. Well, it's ridiculous. Biden <laughs> Can you is believe a mediocrity. It? <laughs> Joe a, a Biden. Total, he's a total mediocrity. Here, here are two strikes against Joe Biden. You can figure out your own third. We have video from the Oval Office where he's standing beside a young woman, and he leans over and says to her, and this was picked up by the mic, do you have any idea how horny it makes me to be standing next to a 13-year-old girl? So I'm telling you, there's the commercial that says it all about Joe Biden. Good here's, Lord. Here, here's, here's another. Uh, about, about a month before Sandy Hook, the mayor of Boston was on this Greater Boston show that was hosted by Andy Rooney's niece. And the mayor was boasting about his close friendship with Joe Biden. And uh, he went on to say, that he's been assured that gun control will be a done deal by January 2013. This is November of 2012. And appropriately enough, Andy Rooney's 
niece is dumbfounded and she says, what could possibly happen to cause legislation to pass so fast? Well, the mayor wasn't willing to say, but it clearly shows Joe Biden was in the plans for Sandy Hook, which was a FEMA drill. One of the contributors, by the way, and Dr. Ewan, of course, was a contributor to the Sandy Hook book, just as she has been to many of my other books, where we started off with a one book. Uh, and after it was banned, Mike Palachek, who's a series editor, was I edit the books. Yeah. Realized we had to found our own company if we're not going to be censored. And we did, moonrockbooks.com. So we began with one book, and now we have a dozen. We have books on JFK. We have books on 9-11. We have books on the moon landing. We have Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Charlottesville. Everything. Orlando. Yeah. It's Everything, a, yeah. It's meant to be a, a research library, or call it a conspiracy catalog, where the American people can learn what really happened, because you're entitled to know the truth about your own history. This was a completely contrived event. It was a FEMA drill, a two-day exercise. We even have the manual. Uh, and, and everything that went down at Sandy Hook, although all the footage was broadcast on the same day, and it took a while to sort it all out, because some of these uh, were from the day before, some of the events being depicted. For example, there was a sign, everyone must check in, that was present from the get-go. Well, it had actually been put there on the 13th. It says right in the manual, everyone must check in with a controller when you arrive. So there was the portable sign, Wolfgang Halbrig, of whom you know. Right. Uh, actually, in pursuit of the <clears throat> uh, justice, a remedy for the failure of Connecticut to satisfy his FOIA requests, which were all totally legit obtained the sworn testimony under oath of Patricia LaLorde of the first select man of Newtown, the position equivalent to the mayor, that the sign had been put there by the Department of Homeland Security. Well, that's very, very interesting, because the Department of Homeland Security wasn't supposed to be on the scene. I mean, you know, but they were, of course, because FEMA is a subdivision of Homeland Security. We also had then uh, porta-potties. Uh, we had pizza and, and bottled water at the firehouse while providing restrooms and refreshment as a standard part of FEMA exercises. We had many participants there with name tags, color-coded name tags on lanyards, which is exactly how FEMA identifies. They've got a whole breakdown. They're like six or eight different color codes. There were parents bringing children to the scene. Now, no parent is going to bring their child to the scene of a child shooting massacre, but this was a rehearsal, and they were treating it as a festive occasion. It was technically uh, a FEMA mass casualty exercise involving children. Uh, so that uh, another of the contributors to our book by the name of Paul Preston, who's himself a school administrator, who's actually supervised these kinds of emergency training exercises, was so troubled by what he saw broadcast from Newtown that day that he reached out to his contacts in the Obama Department of Education, all of whom confirmed to him that it had been a drill, that no children had died, it was done to promote gun control. So if you want to vote for a candidate who's some kind of pedophile or leech and who was in on Sandy Hook, hoaxing the American people, then Joe Biden is your man. Good and Lord. if you want a guy who's now completely lost his way, whom I used to admire, but now thinks Americans should give up their guns so they can't defend their own selves or their families from intruders, for example, or defend their communities from marauding gangs or rioters or defend the nation from invasion by foreign 
Uh, sources such as Emperor Hirohito contemplated invading the United States until he was advised by his highest-ranking military that it would be a mistake because there'd be a sniper behind every blade of grass. He chose not to do so. I mean, having 100 million armed Americans keeps us free. Now, Dave Hodges has emphasized that during the 20th century, there were 19 genocides which involved the, the, the massacre, of the slaughter of whole societies, uh, each of which was preceded by gun confiscation. Uh, so uh, gun confiscation, in turn, is preceded by gun registration. And I'm happy to report that in several states, including Connecticut itself, including New Jersey, including New York, efforts to ban magazines, for example, in New Jersey, have led to turning in of exactly zero, zero magazines uh, and, and other efforts. It's not going to happen, which is one reason it's rather fascinating that uh, in the manifesto that we were given, yes. that was supposedly from this uh, terrorist in New Zealand, he says that he chose weapons because he knew it would get the most media attention. They were actually toys. They may have been air guns, but they weren't real weapons. Greg Hallett, I think, was the first to expose that. He actually discovered the makes and models of the toy weapons. I also consulted an expert who builds and rebuilds weapons, Gordon Duff, the senior editor for Veterans. This is his business. And he inspected the footage, and he agreed that he, he knows firearms from all around the world, their components and their parts. And, and he could find in none of those videos anything that resembled a real weapon. These were toy weapons. They may have been air guns. They made a sound that they couldn't kill anyone. They don't fire bullets. And as Dr. Ewan in her latest, but as we also had in a separate video, the shell casings that are ejected from the, from the weapon, they're improperly ejected. They're not coming out the right way, but they disappear in midair. They never make it to the ground. So you don't have a pile of grass. Shell. Grass just doesn't do that. It doesn't disappear in midair. Yes, I'm looking at <clears throat> the uh, shell casing that vanishes into thin air. And I must say, once again, we are uh, jumping right into the twilight zone, my friend. Well, it's true. I mean, all this is so fabricated and fake. Now, here I was getting to his manifesto. He said his objective was try to exacerbate tensions within the United States over the Second Amendment because the left wing would now push harder and harder to subvert the Second Amendment, which would get more and more resistance from the right. And I'll just tell you, I mean, if the, if the, if the, if the left really wants to bring it on, uh, that hundred million armed Americans did not vote for Hillary Clinton. So what they think they're getting into, I have no idea. It's completely insane. The world is safer. There is a dramatically reduced homicide rate when you allow concealed carry. And if they were to alter their gun laws in Chicago, you'd find the rate of violence there, gun violence, would virtually disappear overnight, just as it did in Dallas and Fort Worth. And let me say, going back historically, when JFK visited Dallas, it had the highest homicide rate in the world at the time. So I think this guy is giving a, 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 a very astute diagnosis. But, but even if it's fake, we have this additional report that I've sent that you now have uh, of another guy who says he's CIA and that he was conducting the drills oh, the video. on behalf on behalf of uh, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton, and the DNC. If you, if you can play that, uh, Michael, I think that uh, yeah. your audience would find this utterly fascinating as I do. All right, I, I have it loaded up here. Let's let's roll the footage then. Hey, I'm going to whistle blow. I orchestrated the Christchurch shooting. 
I orchestrated it under authority from Hillary Clinton, John Podesta. For those that didn't hear it, let me rewind that once again. Uh, just in case you missed it the first time, let's play back. Okay, I'm going to whistleblow. I orchestrated the Christchurch shooting. I orchestrated it under authority from Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, and other DNC people. My name's David Anthony Ruck. I'm a CIA deep state agent. I thought I was doing good for people. I thought I was doing good for humanity. But I've come to realize that, no, Hillary Clinton is a liar. Podesta is a liar. The orders come from much higher. Obama and going back. There's some real deep, horrible shit going on. And I was caught up in the middle of it. And I apologize. I was a big part of the Christchurch shooting. That's why I'm in Christchurch. That's why I'm a U.S. citizen. That's why I'm under CIA. That is why. That must answer many questions. And before any, this video will get cut off, I already know how the media works. We run the media. Hear this full video. All of the evidence is in the hidden server emails. You will never get the full truth unless you get all of the hidden emails from the Hillary Clinton server. Simple as that. Obama, Podesta, oh, pretty colorful language. Some of us have heard it before. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hillary Clinton, oh, you. Oh, my. AOC, all you Muppets and Puppets, Jacinda Ardern, you. You, oh, you, you are the ones that really did this. I was just a puppet. End of story. Research the. I already gave you my name. David, born 27th of the 6th. 77 in Connecticut, grew up in New Zealand. Let anything that's classified be unclassified about me. I give full and complete control to the public to see all my records. Please do. And if you don't push to see my full records, you're a fool for humanity's sake. Amen. God bless. I'm a Christian now. And that was that. Very animated, very angry. Now I feel like the feds will definitely go after him. Well, let me tell you why this is so very plausible. I mean, we began with the Mueller report being a great big nothing burger. We saw it coming, but there are a lot of highly convinced, they've been brainwashed by over two years of constant repetition of Trump having colluded with Russia. They believe their own propaganda. They can't take it. it it's it's uh a form of cognitive dissonance. If you have Chris Matthews suggesting that Robert Mueller was a plant, and he actually said that, he now thinks Robert Mueller was a plant because he hasn't concluded what Chris Matthews knew all along, that, that Trump was colluding with the Russians when there was never anything to it. I mean, you know, I used to think Chris Matthews had a brain in his skull. I used to think he was an intelligent guy. But he's just become an ideologue. And, and a huge part of the Democratic Party believes, without any evidence at all, because there was never any support for it, 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 it they, they took the Russian dossier, which Christopher Steele has now acknowledged in open court under oath. He wrote as an employee of Hillary Clinton. And now you got this guy down in New Zealand identifying himself as CIA deep state, saying he was here doing the dirty work for John Podesta, Hillary Clinton, and the DNC. And look, John Podesta was there just days before this event. That's quite stunning. It's like uh, 
Eric Holder going to Connecticut and meeting with the governor of Connecticut on the 27th of November, about two weeks before the event at Sandy Hook, to tell him they were going to take an abandoned school and conduct a drill and present it as a real event in order to promote gun control. Podesta, Podesta is a very sick puppy, I'll just tell you. There's something profoundly, uh, I, I, I seldom use the word, but there's something profoundly evil about John Podesta. Yeah, he's very unusual and, looking. Yeah, well, if you if you dig into his background and some of the sordid activities with which he has been associated, it, it's, a, it's, it's nauseating. But look, here's the deal. The Democrats have seen this coming. They knew Mueller was a dry hole, that he was going to produce nothing. So their narrative was going to fall flat. That's why they more recently have begun to try to make Trump out to be some kind of mobster. They're using all these themes from the Godfather because they want to keep it simple for the American people. And he's supposed to be a racist to boot. Well, that's a, that's a tough road to hoe, that racist business, because, for example, uh, he, he had a wonderful reputation in New York for working with everybody, uh, no matter their shape, their size, or their color. In 1987, he received the Ellis Island Medal for, for great relations between the races. And in the same photograph, you see him and the other two recipients who were Rosa Parks, who wouldn't give up her seat on the bus that led to so many of the civil rights marches in the South, and Muhammad Ali, who is my pantheon of all-time greats, with Jack, Bobby, Muhammad Ali, and Bill Russell, where I now put Cynthia McKinney and Ihan Omar on the second rank oh, yes. of great courage for... In 2011, Cynthia explained how new members of Congress are asked to sign a pledge to put the interests of Israel ahead of those of the United States. And Correct. if they refuse to do it, they find themselves confronted with a well-financed alternative candidate the next time around or that their district has been redrawn and they no longer have a seat. And while Cynthia was able to overcome those obstacles, many others were not, even Dennis Kucinich. And from where I'm sitting in my office, I'm looking into my library, and I have a very large color photograph of Dennis Kucinich speaking at the Louvre in an auditorium, where I, he came up into the audience, and a, a radio show host who was just behind me took a photograph of me looking up at Dennis Kucinich. Well, it's right there. It's, uh, I don't know, 8, eight by 10, 8 by 12. It's, you know, it's as big as an ordinary letter. Uh, it's a wonderful photograph that I treasure. But even Dennis Kucinich, whom I regarded as the most intelligent member of Congress at the time, couldn't overcome the obstacle. I, I mentioned Gary King because we do this new JFK show every week. Yes, Gary. He recently, this was about a year ago, he asked me, did I know how many members of the then Congress had not signed the pledge? And I admitted I didn't. And he said this many, and he held up one finger of one hand. So this is why what Omar has done is so sensational. I appraise her to the sky. This is absolutely beyond belief. She's, of course, going to be attacked as being an anti-Semite when she's nothing of the sort. And the American public need this very lengthy discussion about the role of Israel in our politics because APAC is overwhelmingly the most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C. In fact, the uh, many have thought to describe this as the, the United States of Israel, because we do Israel's bidding. Many of the Israeli leaders have boasted that that they own America and the Americans know it. That was uh, Ariel Sharon after 9-11, when many were worried that Americans might figure out that Israel was 
the principal player in 9-11 in order to entice the United States and to enter the Middle East yeah, to it's take interesting. out the, the modern Arab states that served as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the entire region and eventually to confront the Persian nation of Iran. It hasn't played out that way, but not for lack of trying. So I think this guy talking about See, the Democrats need a new theme, a new meme to use against Trump, and they want to use gun control. They've been very big on that. Eric Solwell, who is, in my opinion, perhaps the most disgusting, maybe Adam Schiff gives him a close competition among the Democrats in Congress. Eric Swalwell, and of course, they're both from California, has suggested uh, gun control by confiscating weapons at the end of a rifle, in other words, using military force to confiscate f weapons from the American people. And he's talked about using nukes. If there are regions or states that are holdouts and giving up their weapons, he's talked about nuking them. I mean, it's that bad. And this is a guy who took an oath, like every other member of Congress, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States when they're subverting it. That, that disgusts me, especially about Obama on so many different levels. I mean, the second cons uh, uh, the Second Amendment is a key part. I started to explain and didn't quite complete what Dave Hodges was pointing out. Those who want to take our guns want to make us number 20. And the assault is on the First Amendment is correlated because they, those who want to take our guns don't want us to even have the right to explain why it's a bad idea. In fact, it would be catastrophic. And everyone who's proposing it is, in fact, betraying not uh, not only violating the Constitution, but betraying the public interest of American citizens. I'll just say this really quickly about uh, Israel really quickly here. They have mastered certain arts, and one of those is in the art of assassinations. That's one of the um, one of the most interesting aspects about Israel are the assassinations. And what if I told you there is poison toothpaste that could kill you over a duration of time? You would think, Michael, oh, I, you are making that up? No, that wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at all. Not at all. I'm afraid I mean, it actually does exist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yes. they have directed energy weapons can kill you. I mean, uh, we, we had that book, F Final Judgment, by Michael Collins Piper. He died inside a room in a hotel that was locked, but they have weapons that you can fire through the wall that would cause, induce a heart attack. So it was a perfect setup to take him out using such a weapon. So he's found in a locked room having died of a heart attack. What could be more innocuous, you know, more obvious than oh, yes. he was of natural causes? Oh, yes. And armed drones and exploding phones and exploding oh, yeah. tires. Oh, yeah. That's oh, all yeah. Mossad. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> it's so, it's and, and, interesting. And the, well, the tie-in is, is this. I think that this New Zealand thing is so blatant. It's so obvious. This is so phony. This is so contrived. I mean, let let me pull out uh, four of the key points that Dr. Ewan makes in this blog, which yes. is inside Dr. Ewan, and how we know New Zealand mass shooting video is a CGI fake. She has yes. four main points. I just wanted one. to quickly tell the – one second, Jim. I just wanted to quickly tell the audience, and you too, Jim, if you are interested in more about these assassinations and all this stuff, uh, there, there's a book by a man by the name of uh, uh, Ronan Bergman. He interviewed a bunch of Mossad agents, and the book is called If Someone Comes to Kill You, Rise Up and Kill Him First. Definitely a book I recommend uh -huh. everyone to look. It's it's in extremely that's, interesting, Jim. That's a book for our time. It's amazing. I, I could use that book. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to track it down. Yeah, look it up. So, yeah, I will. I will. I will. That's it's a pretty good. easy title to remember. Oh, yes. Uh, here are four key Go shots ahead, she makes about the videos. 
first. When shot, people don't just fall like an inert sack of potatoes. I mean, you got this gunman coming into rooms where there's already a stack of bodies and he hasn't even fired a shot. I mean, mind you, those aren't real shots because it's just a noise-making device that blows air. Second, shell casings vanish into thin air. And you were talking about the video. She's got it right there right. embedded. Third, Bullets hit victims but leave no marks. The most you see in, in the effect from firing a weapon easement at close range is that some clothing is blown around. And it's clear the clothing is blown around by a blast of air. A, bu a bullet doesn't blow clothing around. It penetrates. And then we have fourth, bullets fired at car windshield leave no mark. He actually fires at the windshield inside his car. Oh, yeah. And indeed, and indeed it leaves no marks. Now, I've noticed that there's a photograph out there. Of a, a of a three holes in a windshield in the mark of like a little triangle, and I can only just point out this didn't come from the video because you don't have any bullets penetrating any windshields. He actually knocks out a windshield with the end of one of these toy guns, but that wasn't done by bullets because there were no bullets being fired. And when you see him firing directly into the windshield, nothing happens. I mean, you get a little a little smoke. I mean, it would be like, you know, if you blew on it with your breath and on a cold day, you might get an image. But what's interesting to me is this ought to turn on a lot of light bulbs about Sandy Hook. I mean, you know, had all these signs uh, I've enumerated. You had all the signs that it wasn't a real emergency because there was no surge of EMTs into the building. There was no string of ambulances to rush the little bodies off to hospitals where they could be declared dead or alive. There was no medevac helicopter called, and as Wolfgangs observed, they even do that for drills. Well, yeah, I think hold, they did it. Hold on, one, once the drill, but they didn't want people to know. It was <laughs> well, a drill. one second, Jim. I just want to quickly say one thing that always gives it away uh, to me personally, if the potential of a false flag was imminent, is the fact that there always seems to be some sort of drill uh, ahead of this event, maybe a day or even on that day. Uh, that there's a specific drill about to take place with some sort of law enforcement, and it happens every time, and that includes New Zealand. There was also a drill that very day, my friend. Well, you're going to love this. Uh -oh. the, the local police were in a training seminar during the time this happened, which is why no police show up at the beginning, at the middle, or at the end. I mean, this takes place. The video I have, of course, it includes he's driving to the location. It runs 16 minutes. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you ought to have had a police response, so they're excusing themselves why they weren't responding because they were at a training seminar, as though life doesn't go on whether they're having seminars or not. The fact is that the evidence is overwhelming. It turns out, of course, that uh, Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, uh, during his press conference, explained that they didn't let the parents uh, identify the bodies of their children, which is already a violation of standard medical protocol, but identified them on the basis of photographs. And that turns out to have been appropriate because they only existed in the form of photographs. We've been able to establish, Kelly Watt was the first to offer the conjecture, that little Noah Posner, for example, bore a right. striking resemblance to his older stepbrother, Michael Vabner, and Larry Rivera, who did that same technique of superposition to establish that Lee Oswald was in the doorway of the book depository, at my request, performed a superposition and created a GIF where you can see little Noah turn into Michael Vabner. Yes. Or alternatively, you can see Michael Vabner turn into Noah Posner. 
And it turns out that the shape of your cranium is a fixed feature of a person that's as unique to each person as their fingerprints. So Jim, that, Jim, I gotta, they have the same cranium. I got to jump in here, Jim. The same, eyebrow, the same eyebrows, the same eyes, the same <laughs> nose, the same mouth. Jim, I, I, I mean, must I must interject here really quickly and ask, what was your wife's instant, um, her first initial reaction when you told her you were actually now headed into some sort of lawsuit with this individual? <laughs> well, uh, let me see if I can reconstruct. <laughs> Jan was with me 100% on JFK. She was with me, I'd say, 75% of the way on 9-11. Pretty she strong. and my daughter both assisted. When I had a conference here in 2007 right in Madison on the science and politics of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Sandy Hook is, for her, a bridge too far. So the mm-hmm. less she hears about it, the better. She was concerned that it might have uh, potential financial ramifications for uh, her. Uh, I assured her that there was no reasonable expectation, uh, particularly when you get deeper into the nature of the lawsuit, because the alleged basis for a purported defamation suit, which this man has brought before, I'm not quite sure how many lawsuits he's brought, but he previously brought a suit for defamation against Wolfgang Helbig. But let, let Lenny Posner, who doesn't appear to actually be named Lenny Posner any more than Noah actually was named Noah Posner. But, but when we find that Noah was made up of photographs of Michael Vabner as a child, it appears the reason we have so many photos of Lenny with Noah is because just as Noah was Michael Vabner as a child, Lenny is actually Reuben Vabner, who's going by the name. Uh, Leonard uh, Posner, and we do find Reuben Vabner's in the United States. Now, here's the deal. He sued Wolfgang for defamation. He never showed up in court. He had like a a complete neophyte attorney representing him, someone who was totally inexperienced with the law. That's weird. Uh, Yeah, Wolfgang showed up for every pretrial hearing, and eventually the judge directed that Lenny Posner had to sit for a video deposition. Well, rather than sit for a video deposition, Lenny Posner withdrew the suit. Now, this is what happened, too. When Interesting. The, the, the program Darknet, which is broadcast on Showtime, they do a series about the Internet. and They have a formula. They have a short take on a positive use of the Internet and a short take on a negative, and then they do a controversial case. So uh-huh. they did a segment on Sandy Hook. They came here, and not 20 feet from where I'm sitting, they, they filmed me for four hours. When I finally saw the footage... My facial features are better defined in that particular video than in any other, and I've been in hundreds, okay? But when it came to Noah Posner, interestingly, he wouldn't allow them to show his face. And he Mm. said it's because he didn't want his image to be on the Internet and the subject of harassment. That's just nonsense. He didn't want someone to look at that and say, hey, I know that guy. That's Ruben Vabner. So he's very clever at his attempts to conceal his identity. So he withdrew from the suit with uh, with uh, Wolfgang. Uh, now, in in my case, I was ecstatic, and I suspect I already told you that when the process server <laughs> came out to my house on the 29th of November, <laughs> she said she'd never seen anyone so happy to be so served funny. with a lawsuit. But I view it as an opportunity to focus on the evidence and get it into a court file yes. within a judicial system where he's suing me for defaming him for having described the death certificate that he gave to Kelly Watt as a fabrication. Now, 
we have a, a brand new blog. It's one of uh, a number of brilliant pieces of work by Mona Alexis Presley, in which you see the, the, the uh, death certificate that he gave to Kelly. There are a number of rather striking features about it. The bottom two-thirds is dark in texture, the top one-third different. In other words, it appears to be the bottom two-thirds of a real death certificate top, combined with the top one-third of a fake. It has no file number. Uh, it has no the wrong estimated time of death at 11 a.m. when the actual shooting took place officially between 9.30 and 9.40. Why in the world would it have the wrong, the wrong uh, uh, estimated time of death? Then, just as in the case of the Barack Obama birth certificate from uh, Hawaii, which had a whole lot of problems with the fonts, different phases, that it was done in layers and so forth, we have a whole lot of similarities here, which I enumerated, by the way, in the book. So the, the plaintiff cannot be unaware of all these faults I found here with a typeface. And there were experts who had keener eyes than I who originally discerned them. And I've, I've verified them and found other anomalies here as well. Uh, but when I was served with a suit, uh, the lawyer representing him, who is associated with a prestigious law firm in Minneapolis, uh, uh, Mess Becker, Besher, Mess Besher and Spence, but his name is Jacob Zimmerman. He's, the, the lawsuit had an attached copy of the state of Connecticut certified death certificate, but what I found attached to mine was so blurry and indistinct, it was of absolutely no legal significance whatsoever, such that when this Zimmerman called me, which he did shortly after I had been served, I said to him, I said, do you have any idea what you're getting into? Do you know anything about Sandy Hook? And he just, you know, hesitated. I think he didn't know what to say. And I said, and by the way, the copy of the death certificate you said is, is so poor, it's completely useless. Uh, uh, can't you get a better? And he told me that I could have, if I wanted a, a copy of the death certificate, I could obtain one, the same one anyone else That's could weird. obtain one, namely by writing to the state of Connecticut and paying the fee. Well, I yeah. thought that was pretty, pretty odd. Yeah, it is, because, it's weird. Yeah, it is. Because get that, here's their argument. Their argument is that state of Connecticut has certified a death certificate and that this death certificate they've certified is the, the same in every material respect. They put it the other way around. They said it does not differ from the death certificate that I have described as a fabrication, the one he gave to Kelly Watt. And therefore, I had defamed him because it was a legitimate since the state of Connecticut had certified it, to which I reply, my counter argument spelled out in my answer was the following that insofar as we have already established that the death certificate that Lenny gave to Kelly is a fabrication, if the state of Connecticut has certified a death certificate that does not differ from the death certificate he gave to Kelly in any material respect, then the state of Connecticut has certified a fabricated death certificate, which is itself a crime. And when, and when you look more closely, there's a whole lot of further evidence that things are very, very funny. You've got Lenny Posner actually making changes to the state of Connecticut certified death certificate for Leonard Posner, it, it, for, for Noah Posner, including his address. Now, now, I ask you, I ask you, Michael, how could the address of the decedent change? Once he's dead, he was living in a certain location. When he's dead, it doesn't change. And Lenny Posner, and he uses the name Leonard, although in the death certificate it says Lenny. He changes the address. How is that even possible? He changes his own address. 
it, once you have a death certificate filed, why would you ever go back and change your address? Surely it, it recorded the address where you were living at the time. The one I've noticed that I didn't pick up on initially is the following. In the bottom box, there's a box for the uh, social security number of the decedent. Well, in the death certificate he gave to Kelly, that was blacked out. He'd used a black felt pen to black it out. So I presumed, of course, he blacked out the social security number. But in the state of Connecticut certified death certificate, there is no social security number. It's empty. Mm. And that, that's further proof that there was no, no apostor. You know, the tax law yes. requires that you have to enter the social security number of any dependent you take on your tax returns. Are you suggesting this Lenny Posner? Uh, never took a little Noah as a tax deduction, which he could not do unless he had a social security number. Uh, but if, in fact, the state never issued him a social security number, that would make sense because, as I'm maintaining, he didn't exist. Yes. Well, if you want further proof that, that Lenny is capable of fabricating documents, uh, Mona has done a brilliant study here of a passport. Lenny Lenny had all this stuff up, and including a passport where you see for sure the image of little Noah. And by the way, for anyone who wants to look at this, it's right there on my blog. It's one, two, it's the fourth blog down now. Uh, Mona Alexis Presley, did Lenny Posner fabricate a passport for Noah? And we have a photo of Lenny and Noah of the kind that have been around the world millions of times. In fact, Lenny is organized. And I would call it an internet terrorist group to go around taking down uh, at work by anyone who's doing research on Sandy Hook. Uh, Tony Mead really exposes network. There are like six of them who participate in this. And in a recent interview, which actually is attached as an exhibit to one of my legal documents, Lenny gave an interview with a guy in Berlin who reached out to Lenny, who was, I presume, in Florida, where Lenny was boasting that they'd succeeded in taking down over 10,000 items, contentful items from the Internet, 10,000. So th this guy's an expert in taking stuff down from the Internet. That's weird. I, I, yeah, I've been hit by him twice. Most recently, actually, I, after the lawsuit began, and I began exploring this aspect in greater detail, I was hit for uh, having an image up that he claimed was protected. And when I was contacted... Uh, let's see, was it Twitter? Uh, when I was contacted about it, they showed, I found the protected image was one of him and little Noah, but the image I put up was one of eight of the Sandy Hook girls. In other words, it wasn't even the image I put up. So he's gotten pretty sloppy. And, and these, uh, these uh, tech giants do it all with AI. There's no human processing to actually verify that this is a legitimate complaint. So what, what, what Mona did here is to find a real sample passport and compare it with Noah's passport. She looked at the actual requirements for passports, which you can find at several different locations. And it turns out when you compare the real requirements for passport photos with the Noah photograph, it's not a legitimate passport photograph. And I tell you, they're very meticulous about it. You'll see toward the bottom. There's a diagram that specifies the exact dimensions. These are in two inch by two inch squares and where the face must appear, the exact dimension, one inch to one uh, and three eighths inches. The, the head is too big. The head is in the wrong location. The head is a snapshot. It's not a full front. The, the shoulder spills over outside of the framework. Uh, look, 
fabricating a U.S. passport, that's a federal crime. That's a serious offense. A guy sure who's is. willing to fabricate a U.S. passport to perpetrate a fraud is not going to have any hesitation about fabricating a mere a state death certificate, especially when the state is complicit in this whole event. For example, we have in the book, uh, in Chapter 7, we have 50 photographs of them furnishing an empty house to serve as the Adam Lanza residence, and it's clear it's an empty house. There is nothing on any of the walls. Or Look around your own home anywhere you live, and you'll see photographs, drawing, painting, whatever, on the wall. There's nothing there. I think the real estate agent who allowed them to use the house for this temporary purpose didn't want to have to do touch-up. So there's nothing on the walls. You got 50 photographs of them furnishing an empty house. We got another 50 of them refurbishing the school. And guess what? They were all taken by the Connecticut State Police because they were running the scam in the background. They were all taken by the Connecticut State Police. So that when when InfoWars, when the book was banned, InfoWars put up a report about it that was up for 38 minutes. And it had an even more clear photograph where this is the classic that demonstrates the whole thing is a scam all by itself. You got this. We thought initially it was a SWAT vehicle. I guess it's actually a crime scene investigation vehicle. Very large, massive vehicle. Just above the roof, you can see the string of four windows in classroom 10. Now, those particular four windows had little paper drawings of candles. They're a striking feature about this school, given it was the 14th of December, approaching Christmas, and it's a kindergarten through fourth grade school, it ought to have been ablaze with Christmas and Hanukkah decorations, and yet there are none to speak of. I mean, these these little candles on paper are the closest thing to it, and they're really a faint imitation. But the point is they're undamaged. After the event, they'd be damaged severely. So I also show you the windows damaged and the windows undamaged, so you can see clearly this was taken before the windows were damaged, therefore before the event occurred. And yet, the, while the flag is at full mass, you come down, and just to the right, you see this familiar figure, Wayne Carver, uh, waiting with his arms folded, awaiting the arrival of his portable mortuary tent. You can see this crime scene tape up for a crime that is yet to be committed. Now, it would turn out that we initially, in the first edition of the book, thought this photograph had been taken the morning of the 14th, but it turns out shadow analysis shows it was taken actually the evening of the 13th. So they were getting set up for a crime that didn't occur. Now, when when InfoWars put it up, they had an even better version of that photograph than we had in the book, and it had an image credit. Connecticut State Police. It was up for 38 minutes. It had 178 comments already. They took it down, I'm certain, because of the image credit to Connecticut State Police, because it blows the whole case wide open right yes, there. Yes, and by the way, for anyone that's curious, you can download the book for free, the PDF version. Just go to Google and type in Nobody Died at Sandy Hook PDF, and you'll find the book for yourself. That's, that's right, because I released it for free. When it was banned, I could tell this was totally political. And if I tried to argue about it, I wasn't going to get everywhere. It was going to get dragged out. Who knew the resolution? So I immediately released it for free as a PDF. I was going to be on the Jeff Rent show that night. So I used that, uh, that occasion to announce it. And Jeff had the PDF up for many years. I don't believe he has it up today. Oh, no, it's still up there. From Jeff Rance? From Jeff Rance, okay. yeah. Because there, there are a couple of locations that have it up, yeah, and that's great. Now, there is a second edition. If you want a bound edition, we have the second edition that has, um, let's see, it has four chapters in a, in a, beyond what was in the first edition, and it has an appendix 
Actually, it has a new Appendix D where Kelly is offering her conjecture that Noah was actually Michael Babner as a child, which we've been able to vindicate. So we're now in the thick of this lawsuit. Uh, we have reached a crucial turning point in the road because right. we had a conference call with a judge. Ooh, uh, judge. Let's see, Monday, uh, Monday, uh, a, a week ago, uh, he, he gave us 10 days to file a counterclaim uh, for abuse of process because this lawsuit should never have been brought. They knew when they filed the suit that it was uh, illegitimate. These aren't even the same death certificates. I mean, ask yourself, Michael, how can I be guilty of defamation of Noah Posner for describing a death certificate he gave to Kelly Watt <laughs> That's true. as a fabrication when it's not the same document as a death certificate that the state certified? I mean, I've made the I make the argument that if it's the same in every relevant respect or material respect that the state has certified a fabricated death certificate, but until I was sent the complaint, and by the way, subsequently they did put into the formal files. We have electronic filing of documents in Wisconsin now. So you don't have to create paper copies and do a lot of running around and Xeroxing. And now I have a much better copy, uh, such as the one you see here in this brilliant blog by Mona, and, and just blow them up, you know, do a zoom in and see how many differences you can find. I had never laid eyes on this death certificate before. So how can I be guilty right. of defamation based on a, a death certificate I've never even seen before, never written about before, never commented before the lawsuit was brought? So I think the whole case is absurd. All three, there are three defendants because it's it's me. I'm the principal target, of course, because I've been doing the writing and the research and my series editor, Mike Palachek, with whom I founded, and then the company itself which is a subsidiary of wrongs without remedy. So we have three defendants. We've all fired countersuits. Uh, they fired uh, Mike and wrongs without remedies, fired, filed countersuits for abuse of process. Uh, and, uh, and I fired for two additional actions. I can read you a part of my counterclaim. Uh, counterclaim plaintiff incorporates by this reference all allegations contained within this counterclaim into this cause of action for abuse of process through said allegations, as though said allegation had been set up fully and as late therein, and further alleges as follows. On or about November 27, 2018, Letter, Leonard Posner initiated litigation in this court against James Fetzer, Mike Palachek's, and Wrong Without Remedies, LLC, with alleged causes of action for defamation conspiracy against the defendants. Plaintiff Leonard Posner intentionally filed and served said lawsuit for defamation and conspiracy on said defendants despite his knowledge that his son, his son Noah Posner, was not killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting on November 14, 2012. Leonard Posner's acts by filing and serving a lawsuit, which he knows contains false allegations regarding the alleged killing of his son Noah Posner and the alleged issuance of a death certificate was performed and accomplished for the improper purpose of sustaining the false belief by citizens of the state of Wisconsin and the United States that a child massacre had been perpetrated by a mentally disturbed individual on December 14, 2012, which allegedly, who allegedly took possession of his mother's legally obtained firearms and then went on a killing spree at Sandy Hook Elementary. The improper purpose of the filing and service of Leonard Posner's lawsuit against the defendants arises from the continuing intent of Leonard Posner and his co-conspirators in the federal, state, and local municipal governments, aided and abetted by the mainstream media, 
to continue to mislead and deceive the U.S. population and deprive its citizens of their rights pursuant to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, including the use of social media giants, Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, to suppress exposure of the facts of the matter to the American people and subvert the First Amendment. Second cause of action, fraud and theft by deception. Plaintiff has perpetrated a fraud upon this court and the public by presenting himself as the grieving father of a child whom he claims died at Sandy Hook. When plaintiff has acted in full knowledge, this was a FEMA mass casualty exercise involving children in which nobody, no adult and no child was shot and killed. It has been reported that the fake families of the alleged 26 victims have received from 27 million to 130 million in donations from sympathetic but gullible Americans, which divided equally between the 26 fake families works out to over 1 million to 5 million apiece for the pretense of having lost a child at Sandy Hook. Plaintiff and others who participated in this fraud upon the public are therefore also guilty of theft by deception, which is a crime under Wisconsin Statute 943.20. Third cause of action, fraud upon the court. Counterclaim, plaintiff reaffirms the counterclaim defendant appears to be perpetrating a fraud upon the court. Then there are a lot of legal citations. Continuing, on the basis of multiple lines of research, including national searches using two widely relied upon search engines, which have failed to locate any party by the name of Leonard Posner in the United States. Counterclaim defendant has concluded counterclaim defendant has filed this case under a false name, and that Lenny Posner appears to be as much a fiction as his alleged son Noah Posner, who appears to be a fiction made up out of photographs of older children when they were young, specifically subject to further investigation. Counterclaim plaintiff believes Noah Posner is a fiction made up of photographs of his older stepbrother, Michael Vabner, and that to the best of counterclaim plaintiff's knowledge and belief, Leonard Posner is actually Reuben Vabner, the father of Michael Vabner, which explains why there are so many photographs of Lenny and Noah together, where counterclaim plaintiff is engaged in ongoing research to confirm or disconfirm their findings about the true identity of the counterclaim defendant in the case who does not appear to be a person with the real name of Leonard Posner. Further proof derives from evidence that the U.S. passport for Noah Samuel Posner appears to be another fabrication, where the photograph used to create the document does not conform to State Department regulation with regard to type of photograph, snapshot rather than formal, with a subject looking to the side rather than fully facing the camera. In addition, the image is of the wrong size and violates the placement requirements imposed by the government, which is obvious from inspection. Counterclaim plaintiff believes that faking a U.S. passport represents a far more serious federal offense than faking a state death certificate. This discover, discovery reinforces counterclaim plaintiff's belief that counterclaim defendant has committed and perpetrated a fraud upon the court. There are, uh, there's a final prayer for relief. This is a formality which you ask uh, the court to take action. Counterclaim plaintiff reaffirms his belief that counterclaim defendant complaint has been filed for the illicit purpose of intimidation to prevent public knowledge of the truth concerning the events at San Diego Elementary School and not for genuine legal relief for actionable harm done and is therefore an uh, actionable abuse of process. Counterclaim plaintiff requests the court to reserve for counterclaim plaintiff the options to counterclaim for abuse of process, for fraud and theft by deception, and for perpetrating a fraud upon the court and or to seek relief under Section 802.05 and or under Section 895.044 of Wisconsin statutes. Wherefore, that, that's the basis of it. I don't believe when they filed this suit, which they took great pains to define very narrowly, they ever thought they'd reach the point of confronting counterclaims. But now all three of us have submitted them. 
the other two only for abuse of process, mine for the two additional counts. Very interesting. And of course, I have to say, I'm pretty sure he's him and, and someone else must be the ones responsible for going around uh, YouTube and, and flagging every video that features you, Jim. Oh, I, I, I would not be surprised. I mean, uh, Tony Mead has done this brilliant work. It turns out that uh, 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 Lenny Posner and his gang, and, and I regard these as these are, are cyber terrorists. That's what they're performing, the forms of cyber terrorism, uh, have taken down over 10,000 uh, items with content. And it all appears to be focused in relation to Sandy Hook. I our, wouldn't be at all surprised. Our interviews they, included, Jim. Pardon me? I said our interviews included, even the ones. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Nice point, Michael. Yeah, you've suffered the experience. Mike Adams, too. Yeah. Mike, Ad Mike Adams did an interview with me after the book was banned and back in uh, 2015. He was dumbfounded. This is about a year ago now. When his whole site, he was flagged for that interview from years before, and his whole site was taken down where he had over 1,700 videos and 200,000 subscribers. That's a lot. It's, yeah, it's now back up, but all the links have been severed. He did an interview with me uh, in early 2018 that impressed me that he'd come back for more, you know, given the experience he'd been through where I thought he, after six to eight weeks it had passed and he hadn't published it, that he was decided against. But then there it was, using a phrase he'd introduced at the end of our interview under the title, Most Dangerous Mind in America on False Flags and Extreme Censorship. And, you know, I mean, it drew a lot of comments because it was mostly about Sandy Hook, including... Uh, I believe Lenny was actually posting there under a fake name, and he's doing that on my own blog. And I, you know, <laughs> I learn things from what he posts, from what he thinks are the weaknesses. Yes. So it's edifying for me. But if anyone wants to compare these death certificates and understand how this this case is absurd on its face, but mind you, mind you, I'm so glad that it was filed because I I couldn't really figure out a way to approach this within a legal framework. When, yeah. when Lenny uh, filed a suit against Alex Jones in Texas, I actually reached out to the circuit court there and, and filed an amicus curiae friend of the court brief in which I showed uh, how Noah Posner had been fabricated out of photographs of Michael Vabner as a child, photographs of each of them a fourfold. I didn't have the gif submissible into court because that's inactive. But I, but I have it on many. I have blogs here where you can see that gift of, of, of Noah turning into Michael Vabner right in front of your very eyes. And, you know. Yes. And so Jim, anyway, I, just... I put the, the key thing is this. Yes. I put that in there to assist Alex Jones. But I had for a year and a half been reaching out to him. Uh, you know, he had he knew about the book. He's never had me on his program even once to talk about Sandy Hook when when I have brought together the best experts and have published by far the most and the most formidable defense of the skeptics position about Sandy Hook, demonstrating, I think, conclusively that the school had been closed by 2008, that there were no students there, and that this was a FEMA drill to promote gun control. But Alex Jones has not reached out to me once. And when I actually load the ammo into the gun for him in the case in Texas, and because it's a part of the formal court files, he has to be aware, he and his attorneys, that it's there. And he won't draw on it. He won't fire the ammunition. He won't pull the trigger. That tells me 
he's taken a fall. This is all deliberate. You can see how carefully contrived it is because, you see, he's he's going to fold on Sandy Hook and there's going to claim, well, since Alex Jones has gone down, the whole thing must have been real. Moreover, because he's widely regarded as the leading conspiracy theorist yeah. in the country, they're going to say this debunks conspiracy theorists generally, which, of course, is ridiculous, particularly when you got a guy who really was never all that serious. In other words, Alex Jones is more of an entertainer than he is an investigator. I think he has performed a quite valuable function in the following way. He will address controversial issues and talk about points of view that are not being addressed in the mainstream and thereby provoke Americans who are paying attention to start thinking about these issues. So he's a good place to start, but he's a bad place to finish because he never carries through. He doesn't know how to conduct a serious investigation. That's where you have this extraordinary difference. Here you got a guy like me, a retired university professor. I had two dozen academic books, hundreds of academic articles. I had founded an international journal when I edited solo for 10 years. I'd been 10 years on that as an associate editor is a very famous journal for epistemology, methodology, and the philosophy of science. I taught logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning for 35 years. You put me in the mix and the situation is completely transformed because I know how to take uh, conspiracy theories from theories in the weak sense of conjectures, guesses, or hunches into conspiracy theories in the strong sense of empirically testable explanatory hypotheses. If you want to see a wonderful explanation, I published, <clears throat> it was a, the leading uh, chapter in the bo first book I published on 9-11 entitled The 9-11 Conspiracy, The Scamming of America in 2007, based on the conference I organized here in Madison on the science and politics of 9-11. But it's entitled uh, Thinking About Conspiracy Theories, JFK and 9-11. And if you just put in the title, you can download that to your desktop. For free. I mean, it's right there. Thinking about conspiracy theories, 9-11 and JFK. If you want to see a follow-up where I explain the methodology in spades, you want to download reasoning about assassinations. This is a lecture I gave explaining how simply by identifying where JFK was hit in the back, which was actually five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column by a shallow shot that only went in about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger, you can establish the existence of a conspiracy, which I initially presented at Cambridge and then published in an international peer-reviewed journal, which has got to be, you know, one of the very few. Uh, I mean, talk about, you know, demonstrating a conspiracy of JFK in a peer-reviewed journal. You can download that for free, too, from the Internet. Just put in the title, Reasoning About Assassinations. If you read those two you'll get a pretty good idea of what I'm all about because it's all applying scientific reasoning to these controversial cases and yes. taking speculations into converting them into an empirically testable form where a key aspect of that, by the way, Michael, is sorting out the authentic from the inauthentic evidence, just as we found with JFK that the autopsy x-rays had been altered to patch a fissite blood at the back of the head that that the brain shown in diagrams and photographs in the National Archives is not even the brain of JFK. And of course, that the whole movies had been massively edited to conceal the true causes of death. Well, we find all kinds of fraud and fakery in these other cases, and Sandy Hook is no exception. I, I don't think they really expected someone with the, the background I bring to the table to become engaged in all of this. Yes, and, and Jim, I, I just want to quickly say that 
uh, freedom of speech and freedom of thought is becoming limited each day uh, here in America and, of course, around the world. That's sort of the way it, it goes around the world, but Jesus Christ, it, it does have me uh, perturbed uh, greatly, Jim. Yeah. This is why I say in, in response to Dave Hodge's observation about the 19 demo sides in the 20th century, each of which was preceded by gun confiscation, we have to take measure to ensure we don't become number 20. Yeah, and it seems like America is going in the way of the UK, which is something I told Kitty Hopkins uh, months ago. And especially now with Bernie Sanders pushing for the whole New Zealand thing and the ban on on, on weapons here, it's kind of Listen, strange. Let because... me tell you about Bernie. Because, because his foreign policy overlapped with that of Trump, which I regarded as the single most important issue. But because I agree much more with Bernie on domestic issues, as I identified, you know, Social Security, Medicare. I'm for Medicare for everybody. I think that's the right way to go. Sure. I, I would have gladly voted for Bernie over Donald if the DNC had only allowed him to be the nominee, which would have happened had had Debbie Wasserman Schultz not sabotaged his campaign. For example, she gave 13 primaries that Bernie had won to Hillary to guarantee she'd be the nominee. This is why Seth Rich, who was a Bernie supporter, became disillusioned and downloaded the files from the DNC. So the whole thing was to conceal, you know, their ineptitude, their corruption. I mean, the Democratic National Committee is one of the most corrupt the Democratic Party has totally lost its way. It's become a bunch of brainless ideologues. And, and sad to say, Bernie Sanders has now revealed to me that he is a moron. He is a moron. I could never now support Bernie Sanders. Heretofore, I would have said, well, you know, if Bernie actually makes his way through the primaries, I'm going to have a tough decision between Bernie and Trump because I would gladly have voted for Bernie over Trump had he been the Democratic nominee. Yes, but sadly, it seems like Joe Biden, of all people, uh, seems to be pulling ahead of everybody, even Kamala yeah, Harris. But, which but is... I've given you two great reasons why yes. he's going to go down. Yes, you I, did. You make a commercial, it runs less than a minute. You show Biden in the Oval Office, you <laughs> see this young girl stand beside him, and you listen as Joe Biden leaves over and says, do you have any idea how horny it makes me to be standing <laughs> next to a 13-year-old girl? Oh, my. Yeah, That's your commercial. That's this not going like to be good. Daisy. This is like Lyndon's Daisy commercial. Do you know that, that little girl picking a daisy with a hydrogen bomb going off in the background when he was running against Barry Goldwater? That only actually was broadcast one time. But the mainstream media picked it up and they repeated it 100,000 times. I mean, it sealed the deal for LBJ, who was going to win anyway because of all the residual sympathy for JFK. I mean, Lyndon was supposed to be his, you know, carrying the torch for JFK when, in fact, he actually had organized organize his assassination so he could accede to the nation's highest office. It, you, to understand JFK, you have to go back to Los Angeles in 1960, where Jack had already extended the invitation to be his running mate to Stuart Symington of Missouri, but he gave him overnight to think about it. When Bobby went by, by the Johnson suite to extend a pro forma as a gesture offer that he run, never imagining the powerful majority leader of the Senate would given a second, thought he was stupefied when LBJ jumped on it. He not only uh, uh, wanted it, but he threatened to expose, number one, that JFK had Addison's disease and therefore wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life. And number two, information he got from J. Edgar Hoover that among his dalliances was a beautiful woman was an East German spy. 
so that, and third, he added to top it all off that if he were not on the ticket, and any legislative proposal set down from the White House would be dead on arrival because he is the majority leader of the Senate would kill them. Bobby and Jack tried to figure a way around, but they were unable to do so. They had to accede to Lyndon's demands when it was announced and one of uh, Johnson's wealthy backers heard the news. He burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan, where Bobby Baker would later declare in public that JFK would not survive his first term and that he would die a violent death. Lyndon Johnson said his own chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, to Dallas in advance to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. LBJ is a bastard. Yep. I'm afraid to say, but... All the way with LBJ. Well, mm -hmm. he had a sordid career. We have all these books by the people who knew Lyndon up close and personal were convinced that he was responsible for the assassination. Madeline Duncan Brown, for example, with whom he began an affair in 1948, she bore him a son, Stephen, in 1950. I had over 100 conversations with Madeline. Uh, she was at the Murkison ratification meeting the night before the assassination. Uh, there were only a few dozen people there, uh, but there were heavy hitters, in including, for example, Jagger Hoover. She thought maybe this is an event in his honor since he'd stop in Dallas on his way to the Del Mar racetrack in California with Clyde Tolson, his close personal aide. Uh, let's see, H.L. Hunt was there. Uh, you had George Brown of Brown and Root Heavy Construction when the Vietnam War went down. Brown and Root was given a billion dollars to dredge a new port at Comron Bay, even though Vietnam has many magnificent natural reports that I'm certain they didn't need another. Uh, when, when Lyndon showed up late in the evening, uh, they, the heavy hitters disappeared into a boardroom in, for, for 15 or 20 minutes, including, uh, let's see, he was our former high commissioner to Germany and uh, uh, the ch former chief executive of Chase Manhattan Bank, whom, whom, whom uh, Lennon would appoint to the Warren Commission, which had two House members, H Hale Boggs and Gerald Ford, two senators, John John Sherman Cooper and uh, the other, and, and two civilian, one of whom he appointed was uh, Alan Dulles, for God's sake. Jack had fired, uh, and, and the other, John J. McCoy, whose name I was seeking, who, uh, who was there at the ratification meeting for crying out loud. Uh, Dulles may have had a hand in planning it, though it appears that uh, it was actually Edward Lansdale, who was an Air Force general who organized assassinations all over Vietnam, among other places, who actually positioned the shooters and determined the sequence in which the shots would be made. Well, after they, they broke up, Lyndon strode over to her, and Madeline told me she thought he was going to whisper sweet nothings in her ear. Instead, he told her in a hateful tone of voice that he, he, he wasn't going to have to put up with embarrassment from those Kennedy boys after tomorrow, that that wasn't a threat, that was a promise. Ooh. The following day, he actually called her before the motorcade and repeated the same message. Six weeks later, on New Year's Eve at the Driscoll Hotel, they had a rendezvous. And Madeline confronted Lyndon with rumors rampant in Dallas that he'd been involved since no one stood to gain more personally. Uh, he blew up at her and told her the CIA and the oil boys had decided that Jack had to be taken out. 
That's as close as we have to a direct confession from the man who was responsible for the assassination of perhaps the most beloved president the United States has ever known. Very interesting stuff. And Jim, how do you feel about Trump holding back some of the files of the JFK assassination? Uh, apparently, you know, the deadline did come up. But once we well, hit that a deadline... Well, a lot of us were optimistic and also about right. 9-11. Sure. You know, because he gave that interview in New York immediately after 9-11, perhaps a day later, where he explained that the same builders who had put up the Twin Towers were working for him now, that they were so solid in their edifice that no plane could have penetrated, that the buildings could not have been brought down by planes, that something else had to be involved. He actually said bombs. I mean, he was, of course, spot on. I mean, the, the debate has been over exactly how it was done, which appears to have been nuclear nuclear devices, which is confirmed by the U.S. Geological Survey that did uh, studied dust samples from 35 locations in lower Manhattan and found a host of elements that would not have been present had this not been a nuclear event, barium, strontium, lithium, lanthanum, tritium, some of which only exist in radioactive form. But with regard to JFK, we also had high expectation, and apparently there was a rear guard action so that a lot of the files have been released, but there are some that have been held back, including, Correct. for example, for George Ioannidis, who is the PSYOPs officer for the CIA, who was not only involved in JFK, but also in Bobby. By the way, among the documents that emerge is not only a whole trail showing how they fabricated Lee Oswald's visit to Mexico City to prop up the fake story that he was seeking to defect to uh, the Soviet Union by way of Cuba because he was assassinating Jack on behalf of uh, the communists, which was all total nonsense. But we also found a, a document showing that Earl Campbell, who was the brother of Charles Campbell, who was a deputy director of the CIA dismissed by JFK in the wake of the Bay of Pigs fiasco, where they were setting him up with a bait and switch and Richard Bissell. And then later he would retire Alan Dulles with great panther. The mayor of Dallas at the time was the brother of Charles Campbell, uh, where where uh, Charles was born in Dallas in 1903 and Earl near Dallas in 1906, actually joined the CIA in 1956. So the mayor of Dallas at the time was already CIA. It looks like the whole Texas School Book Depository was a CIA op. The gunman in the Daltex was firing from the broom closet of a uranium mining op that was another CIA asset. I got to know one of the participants, Chauncey Marvin Holt, he's the third of the three tramps, the older guy in the hat carrying a paper bag. He, he explained to me how he had prepared 15 sets of Ford Secret Service credentials for use in and around Dealey Plaza when he got there. He was supposed to put him in a red pickup truck that was parked behind the grassy knoll. Most people don't even know today that was a parking lot used by the Dallas Police Department, but the vehicle wasn't there. He wandered around Dealey Plaza. He told me he saw more hip-minute assassins than you'd find at a soldier of a fortune convention. He went back, and the red pickup was there, so he left the credentials. He was in the company of Charles Harrelson, the father of the actor Woody, as a hitman for the for the mafia, and and Charles Rogers, who we know as Richard Montoya, and they fled as directed to a boxcar. There was a railroad yard down behind that they were told would appear to be locked, but would actually be unlocked. When they climbed in, they found it was loaded with explosives, weapons, and ammunition. The train pulled out, but the railroad director thought something was funny, pulled him back, and the police apprehended and walked them through Dealey Plaza, where they actually 
or march past, guess who? Edward Lansdale walking past was heading to meet with George H.W. Bush in front of the Dow Tex building. Bush was actually arrested coming out of the Dow Tex where he'd been supervising the anti-Castro Cuban who fired three shots with a man liquor Carcano from that location, the only three unsilent shots to set up the acoustical impression that only three shots had been fired. The actual total was eight, nine, or 10. It may have even been one or two more now that we have two additional shooters to take into account. I, I can you know talk at great length and detail about the shots that were fired and where they hit. And we know the name of all the participants who were the actual shooters, except for the one behind the tree on the grassy knoll, where I now have seen two photographs, one from Rick Russo and one from Ed Tetro, that you can see a man with a rifle. These are different photographs, but it's the same guy. Understood. And of course, as you were explaining that to the listeners out there, I have the audio of Trump queued up now. Sure, do. Yeah, on 9-11. Great. Yes, let's run that. There's a great deal of question about whether or not the damage and, and the ultimate destruction of the buildings was caused by the airplanes, by architectural defect, or possibly by bombs or, or aftershocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it was an architectural defect. You know, the World Trade Center was always known as a very, very strong building. Don't forget, that took a big bomb in the basement. Now, the basement is the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation. And it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour because he did the building. And I said, I can't believe it. The building was standing solid and half of the columns were blown out. I mean, so this was an unbelievably powerful building. Uh, if you know anything about structure, it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside. The steel, the reason the World Trade Center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows, you had the steel on the outside. So you had the steel on the outside of the building. That's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams. When I first looked at it, I couldn't believe it because there was a hole in the steel. And this is steel that was, you remember the, the width of the windows in the World Trade Center, folks. I think, you, you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously because I just can't imagine anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. This one was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have. And it was almost just like a... I just wanted to pause it quickly there and, and say, Jim, a lot of people were under the notion that Donald Trump would sort of disclose further information about 9-11 prior to his election. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we were optimistic. Actually, this is a different and much more extensive and detailed interview than the one I first heard, which was earlier, where he was on the street. Yes. And he said that, you know, the same builders were working for him that had put up the Twin Towers. And the, the buildings were so powerful that planes couldn't penetrate, couldn't possibly have brought them down. Something else had to be involved. Bombs, he said. That was almost the totality of the earlier conversation. This is much more detailed. Now, there are a couple of things that are interesting about this. Uh, uh, one is the, the building, the design, which was indeed very robust, was a tube within a tube. There were 47 massive core columns in the middle. And then you had these 230 external steel support columns. They were connected by steel trusses that were filled with four to eight inches of concrete. 
connected at one end then to the, four, the, the core columns, at the other to the external steel support columns. But he's 100% correct that those external steel support columns were very formidable in and of themselves. And when you, when you, when you re realize that the Flight 11, which wasn't actually even in the air, but was supposed to have hit the North Tower, was intersecting with seven of those floors, each of which consists of a steel truss filled with four to eight inches of concrete. And because the buildings were 208 feet on the side, that means each building was a steel truss with an acre of concrete. That would have posed enormous horizontal resistance. The plane could not have entered the building. It would have crumbled external. In the case of Flight 175, yes, it was uh, supposed. These were both supposed to be 767s. Yes. Again, it was intersected with eight different floors. Massive horizontal resistance couldn't possibly have entered. So, on the basics, he's right. He's also correct about the explosion in the sub-basement. Now, that was timed to coincide with the images of the plane hitting the building. They actually set them off in the sub-basement to drain the sprinkler systems of water. So they couldn't extinguish the very modest fires that would remain after the pre-positioned uh, jet fuel or napalm was set off to coincide with the apparent impact of the planes with the building. See, they had to get the planes all the way into the building before they exploded in order to have a pseudo justification for the what they would call a collapse of the buildings, which is, is wrong because the buildings are actually blowing apart. From the top down, they're blowing apart in every direction from very powerful sources of energy, which appears to have been nuclear-derived. Now, on the latest theory, and this may be the correct, Joe Olson, who's a structural and civil engineer, has in the memorandum series uh, uh, to which we contributed for Robert David Steele, where you can find his memoranda on 9-11 for the president, his memoranda on Sandy Hook for the president, where I participated in. In, the, in composing oh, both yes. of those, bringing together con mm -hmm. contributors. Uh, it, the, the, the massive explosion of sub-basements were ill-timed, so that Gordon Ross and Craig Furlong have a study that's quite brilliant entitled Seismic Proof 9-11 Was an Inside Job, where because of a defect in hand-eye coordination, no doubt, they actually set off the explosions 14 and 17 seconds too early before the planes officially impacted with the building. I just wanted to quickly mention and tag on to this that in 1999, a lot of people don't even know this, Jim, in 1999, NORAD conducted hijacking exercises where planes just happened to be flown into the Pentagon and to the World Trade Center. Isn't that cute, Jim? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and here you had Condoleezza Rice claiming, completely falsely, of course, that no one had any idea or thought that anyone could use, uh, uh, I'll call you in just a minute, uh -oh. that no one could use planes to commit a terrorist attack, you know, but in fact, they're actually planning for it. We have photographs where you see a model, a mock-up of a 757 in the center of the Pentagon's five rings. So they were even planning for the same type of plane that we claim. Interestingly, it, the, it, unlike Sandy Hook, where the violations of laws are of societal laws which can be violated, like driving instructions uh, or Americans for Disability. They, there's no, they're not, not handicap accessibility to exits and entrances of the San Diego School, so it wasn't in compliance with ADA. Even in 2012, it didn't have handicap parking, meaning it could not have been legally yeah. operating as a public school. Plus, you have vehicles that are all parked facing the building, but the driving instruction would have you turn in, curl around to the right and park facing away. It was obviously simpler just to bring the cars in a single file and put them in two by two by two, but it gives away what was going on. 
In the case of 9-11, they were actually violating laws of physics and engineering and even aerodynamics. And these laws of science cannot be violated and cannot be changed. For example, the Pentagon aircraft is alleged to have approached a building at over 500 miles an hour, barely skimming the ground. Well, it turns out for a 757, that's aerodynamically impossible. That plane at that speed could not have got closer than 60 or even 80 feet to the ground. So to give us the fantasy of 9-11, they actually had to violate not just societal laws. You know, I mean, I test them every now and then by driving faster than the speed limit and more. I've, I've too often found that there's actually enforcement out there. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, it's absurd. You cannot violate the laws of physics and engineering and aerodynamics. And yet they gave us an account of 9-11 that does all of the above. Yes. Let's continue playing that audio clip. I, I stopped it about a minute in. We still got a few minutes of that clip. Let's roll it now. I've never heard it before, though. It's pretty interesting. Rolling it now. Yeah, like a can of soup. You know, Donald, we were looking at pictures all morning long of that plane coming into uh, building number two. And when you see that uh, approach the, the far side, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a millisecond, the explosion pops out the other side. Right. I just think that it was a plane with more than just fuel. I think... Obviously, they were very big planes. They were going very rapidly because I was also watching where the plane seemed to be not only going fast, it seemed to be coming down into the building. So it was getting the speed from going downhill, so to speak. Uh, it just seemed to me that to do that kind of destruction is even more than a big plane because you're talking about taking out steel, the heaviest caliber steel that was used on a building. I mean, these buildings were rock solid. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing. That's amazing that he knew that. The clip is a well, good by the he, way. He, he, he's misstating. You see, he doesn't understand physics. I mean, he's got the right general idea, but he's not applying it properly. It wouldn't matter how fast the plane was traveling. Uh, uh, by the relatively, relativity of motion, you'd have the same effect if the building stationary hit by a plane going 400 miles an hour, or if the plane is stationary hit by a, this. This is a massive 500,000 ton building going. 400 miles an hour would have wrecked the plane. It doesn't matter which way you put it. It's the same effect. That's why, you know, automobile collisions are additive. The total speed is the combination of the speed of both vehicles. It, it, it could be the same effect of one vehicle running into a concrete wall at 100 miles an hour or two vehicles running into each other where they're both running 50 miles an hour. The, the equivalent is the effects of a 100-mile-an-hour crash. It could be 80 and 20, 70, 30, all that. So Trump doesn't understand quite enough to get it right. On the other hand, and, and no plane could have entered the building. So no plane came out. This was a this was an effect of the fact that they were faking it with a, a video image. So you had the nose, which is the most fragile part of the plane, emerge from the opposite side. And would you believe when 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 they're covering this most important footage that these networks would ever cover? I mean, leave aside the moon landing, which was all hoped and done with a single feed. And you can see how they did it in Capricorn 1 about faking a mission to the to Mars. It actually, they went to black. The networks went to black at the very point when the nose started to come out because they realized, oh, my God, we, we mucked up. <laughs> Rolling the footage. Yep. Oh, so Donald, you know. Here, at least, his heart appeared to be in the right place. He didn't have all the details right, but he certainly had the, the correct general idea. But no plane, just because it was a big plane, it couldn't have got through the building. He's right talking about the massiveness of the building, but he underestimates how much resistance it would oppose to any plane. That's just made of aluminum. This is analogous to claiming you could get 
throw a beer can through a stone wall if you need to throw it really, really hard. I mean, it's that stupid. And in fact, the beer can isn't even filled with beer. It's empty. Aluminum tube is not going to go through a 500,000-ton building with a formidable steel edifice. It's going to crumple external to the building. And we know for a certainty it didn't happen because what would have occurred is you'd have body seats, luggage, uh, wings, tail, uh, as debris falling to the ground. But we have photographs of the roadway and the, the sidewalk beneath both the north and the south facade. And there are no, no aircraft or planes or bodies or luggage, none of the debris you'd expect. Then, oddly enough, that was also true at the Pentagon. You look at the original hit point. It's about a, a, it's on the ground floor. It's about 10 feet high, 16 or 17 feet wide. There's a chain link fence. There are two automobiles that are afire, a couple of enormous spools of cable. There are unbroken windows uh, surrounding the hit point. There is no massive pile of debris from a 100-ton aluminum aircraft, no wings, no tail, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, not even the engines, which are virtually indestructible, were recovered from the Pentagon. Amazing stuff. And, of course, Jim, I did want to go back to New Zealand for a bit here. Yeah. I see that New Zealand, they now are restricting anyone from possessing uh, the footage now of the yeah. shooting up to 10 years in prison. I know, I know. Why? Wow. Because they watched it. I mean, it's so obviously flawed. It's so obviously fake. This is why I like it. The reason I like it is the same reason they're suppressing it with heavy, you know, a heavy hand, which is also so damn peculiar. Ten years, I mean, though? There, there's no bona fide carnage whatsoever. No one is actually being shot. It's all totally fake. It's all totally fake. Those aren't even real weapons. Those are toy guns. I can't even believe, though, but they want to charge you ten years in prison if you possess well, or share the video. They're panic-stricken. And frankly, I don't think the Kiwis are going to be willing to give up their guns, okay? They got, like, 1.2 million armed uh New Zealand residents, frankly, I don't think they're going to give up their guns. And therefore, we could see a mini play out of what I expect would happen here in the USA if they actually tried to take our guns. I, I have said, and it has been recorded, when they come for our guns, the time has come to use them. I cannot be too emphatic. That is absolutely the bottom line. Unless you want to live the rest of your life as a slave, or be slaughtered, because I guarantee you 100% that is the agenda, that is the plan. So don't give up your guns. Your life not only may, it does depend upon Yes, and this goes, this goes right back to Bernie Sanders and how he's jumping on the bandwagon of the uh, New Zealand situation. He's going to try to use that as a ploy uh, during his run, I'm pretty sure. It's not going to work. Look, look, he's going to try. You have admired... Bernie Sanders for so long, who would have even voted for him over Donald Trump in all probability, am now convinced the man is a moron. If if I am willing to say that, and I, I guarantee you 100% the man has demonstrated to me completely 100% he is a moron. He, he can't tell the difference between fakery and real when you have such blatant footage in New Zealand. When they're going for the gun so fast, it's obvious. You can see cause and effect. It, uh, Barack Obama at least had the good sense to wait a month and two days until uh, January uh, 16th of 2013 before he signed 23 executive orders to restrict our access to weapons under the Second Amendment. He at least waited a, a month and two days. 
But this was done instantly, instantly. It shows, you know, they've overplayed their hand. And this is an object lesson for the whole world, and especially for Americans. And frankly, Bernie isn't going to go anywhere if he's going to be a gun grabber. I guarantee you, these people, anyone, it's a litmus test now. I tell you, the political litmus test of whether a political candidate is or is not worth a damn is whether or not they promote gun control. If they promote gun control, they aren't worth a damn, frankly. Don't support them. You're making a colossal blunder. I asked uh, Benjamin Fulford on the previous episode what his opinion on the matter was, and he was not yet decided, but he did mention a few things like the disappearing showcase uh, in the shooting there. And, of course, Jim, I looked at the footage myself. I thought it looked real until I saw a few different things like the disappearing showcases and of course there's a an image that you had posted on your website jim and it looks like it says here the image is of this gentleman who apparently was shot and his kid is on top of him and the i guess his father is holding like a cell phone yeah 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 this was supposed to be the hero of the other mosque uh, and he's, you know, this is appears to be the rehearsal of footage from the other. Yeah, they, they say that's but allegedly it, his son that's embracing him and the the guy, the dad, he's holding a cell phone in one hand. And allegedly this is the kid. I'm going to put the image up right now uh, on uh, the chat room so they could see the the image. And the kid, he looks like a Warwick, Warwick uh, Davis in the movie Willow. <laughs> really? Really? He really does. It's it's really interesting. I'm not sure how that's the same kid in the other photo. Well, uh, I will. Look, I have given uh, so many videos now. I've interviewed Oli Damagard. I've interviewed Greg Hallett. I've interviewed Scott Bennett. Uh, we have done a joint show, uh, Scott Bennett, Michael J. Anderson, where Scott's a former Army Intel and PSYOPs officer. Michael J. is a, a Vietnam uh, a combat veteran who actually fired, you know, machine guns in combat. I'm a former Marine Corps officer. Uh, uh, it's fake. The whole thing's how. Phony. How I, is I, that I, a kid I, though? I, how is that a two year? How is that his two year old son? Um, I'm looking at the photo again, and I'm still laughing because it really does look like the the main character in the movie Willow. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. They do things like that. They put in, you know, deliberate insults to rub your nose in it. Uh, Oli's become so good, he can actually predict where they're going to do the next based upon clues left behind. And one of the tells turns out to be shoes, that shoes are left as a sign. If it's one shoe, it's a willing participant. If it's two shoes, maybe uh, something funny going on. Well, well, Oli does a great job of spelling it all out. He's a great guy. Uh, but mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a super guy, yeah. Uh, but this is all really totally fraudulent. I guarantee you 100% it's fake. Yeah, it's just completely bizarre. And again, a uh, strange coincidence that the police were also conducting a drill, like I mentioned earlier. And it seems like there's this familiar pattern that we've seen countless times that would no doubt lead one to make these sort of assumptions. Yeah, well, see, the beauty of it is you can see cause and effect here so clearly. They fake a shooting and then they take your guns, okay? Now, Michael J. likes to emphasize it's not the government that gives us that right. That's an inalienable right. And, they, you know, it's very clear in the Constitution that the right of the citizen to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is why I really do like this uh, Second Amendment sanctuary movement for cities and counties and states. I mean, if they can pull off a, a complete 
sham of having sanctuary cities for illegal migrants who are, who are living off the land. They're taking taxpayer money and giving it to illegals who aren't even entitled to be here off of the sweat of our brow. And it infuriates me that Lenny Posner, I have no doubt, is deep state, too, and he's bringing this lawsuit using taxpayer money to against me for and my colleagues for our efforts to bring the truth to the American people. Amazing. Well, we are going to succeed. But but I I mean, he's doing his very best when you got a guy who with his his gang of cyber terrorists have taken down over 10,000 items from the Internet. And I suspect you're exactly right that he's been responsible for taking a lot of my videos now. Of course. I, I uh, truly believe so, you know, I don't know why it hadn't crossed my mind that you, you spelled it out, but you've got to be you got to be completely right, Michael. I think so, my friend. And, of course, going back to what you were speaking about in terms of Muslims and uh, the shootings, I, I do have a clip of uh, Chelsea Clinton now that was being berated. Let's listen well, to that audio real quickly here, Jim. Sure. After all that you have done and all this on the that you have so I'm so sorry. Well, certainly, it was never my intention. I do believe words matter, but I believe we have to show We do matter. This, this, this right here is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you and the words that you have put out into the world. And I want you to know that, and I want you to feel that deep inside. 49 people died because of the rhetoric that you put out there. I don't think I'm sorry you feel that we mean what does that mean basically she's being blamed for the death of 49 people it's her fault because it's her rhetoric that caused this who who is she attacking is she attacking Ian Omar no she's being attacked Chelsea Clinton is being attacked yes by some looks like Chelsea Clinton is not worth the time of day she she has never shown she had a brain in her head that that anyone would take her seriously for <laughs> anything is beyond me. It's just simply ridiculous. Yes, I'm and, not sure you know, what that was about, but and, yes. Michael, I'm, uh, oh, Richard Russell was the name of the other senator, John Sherman Cooper, and then the two House and, you know, Hale Boggs, who disappeared over Alaska. And, of course, Earl Warren should never have chaired the Warren Commission. Lyndon talked him into it because, think, if they'd actually done their job and, and put together evidence that led to any indictments, the legal cases would have eventually made their way to the Supreme Court where the chief justice couldn't exercise his role because he was already compromised. He had a conflict of interest because he participated in the investigation. Lyndon was a very clever guy. He knew how to get his way. Uh, and he made it to the presidency, and there it is. There is the legacy of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Amazing. And of course, folks, that was a clip. Uh, also, Jim, that was a, a clip from a student at the New York University. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty unusual that they would uh, go after her. And she, I, apparently she's also pregnant when, when that whole thing went down. Who was who pregnant? I believe uh, Chelsea Clinton is pregnant. Oh, well, all right. Good that's Lord. what we need is more little Clintons in this world. <laughs> yes. Mike, Michael J., I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for featuring me again. I really enjoy shows with you. I just, I like your manner. I like you. I enjoy these programs. And it's just a real pleasure. Yes, sir. Uh, clockwise. And Jim, always an honor and pleasure. We definitely will do this again in the near future. And uh, Jim, before I cut you loose, any final words before we part ways here? 
Well, if anyone wants to check out the latest on the Sandy Hook lawsuit, I mean, you, you know, uh, Dr. Rielan, uh, you know, I published a blog of hers where she showed that the, the national search doing two different search engines, there isn't a Leonard Posner in the United States. I mean, I feel very comfortable about my counter suit. I'll be publishing more. I read from it. I'll actually be publishing it on my blog because all these court documents are, in fact, in the public domain. Mona Alexis Presley, brilliant piece about the passport. I think that's really devastating. I had a friend who actually was the person who, who talked me into going to Twitter. Ah. So I've been doing Twitter now for about six months, maybe. And he said it's just a, the death of a thousand cuts that each time uh, I publish something more on Sandy Hook, it becomes increasingly obvious that it's a complete fraud and a scam. And just remember, they did this to deprive us of our right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. That this uh, New Zealand thing, and I must have five different blogs already about New Zealand, so you can learn a great deal in brief compass by going to jamesfetzer.org. Uh, this New Zealand thing is a microcosm of what they're trying to pull off here, completely phony. In the case of the United States, a whole series of these staged events. And if you want to learn more about them, go to moonrockbooks.com, because you'll find we have a dozen now with more forthcoming. And I just want to say, you know, this is your country and your future. And, you know, I've, uh, I've uh, really had a wonderful life, but I am distraught by the extent to which we have lost our way. We're no longer observing the Constitution. The, the, the Democratic Party is a complete morass. I haven't, I don't see a viable candidate in the whole bunch. And while I might have favored Bernie, his attitude about New Zealand shows he's an ignoramus on the one hand. In about gun control, he's a complete moron on the other. I cannot recommend Bernie Sanders again, although in the past I thought he was an admirable guy. I no longer hold that position. So we all, we're not too old to learn. You got to learn from these experiences. Right. And, you know, take advantage of the research that I and my associates are doing because this is not for our own benefit. This is for the American people to understand what's truly going on. And therefore, I create this research library, this conspiracy catalog, if you will, so you can have access to what really happened, whether it's Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Orlando, Dallas, Charlottesville, Parkland, JFK, 9-11, the moon landing and more. Check it out. There's something there for virtually every interest, and it matters. This is real history, not what you're finding in the books that they're teaching to our children. I agree 100%. And, Jim, I have to correct you. It's not just for the American people. It's for everyone around the world so they could see all the things that go on in this country and others as well. And, Jim, that book, by the way, of the Mossad assassins, it's actually called Rise and Kill First. Rise and kill first. Good, good, good. Yeah, no, that's, I, I need to read that book. Okay. You really do. Trust me, you're going to, yeah, you're really yeah, going to yeah. like it. It is amazing. So thank you once again, Jim. Always an honor and pleasure. And we'll do this again on the other side, my friend. Be my great pleasure, Michael. I really enjoy it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh-huh. And there he goes, Jim Fetzer, moonrockbooks.com. And when I return, I will wrap it up here and call it a night. A few different things to say here before we end this glorious episode. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. 
And welcome back, boys and girls. How's it going? Oh, interesting in, in the chat room there. What was I doing on the break? It seems like some of you are, are kind of right on that. That's kind of what I do on the break. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm sure you have to do that every now and then, too. Sometimes I have to pee really badly uh, during the show. I even contemplated uh, getting up and going to pee when uh, Jim was talking there a couple times. Michael, how did everything come out? Well, actually, I didn't have to go number two that time. I just needed to pee really, really bad. A gang of four in the chat. Yeah, just needed to pee just a little bit there. Drank a lot of water. A lot of orange juice, actually. Orange juice and water. That's what I've been drinking lately. The orange juice part. I, I drink a lot of water uh, by default. But orange juice, I don't really drink it too often. Given the option, I always pee outside. That's what Gang of Four says. Hmm. You know, peeing outside is actually quite relaxing. For whatever reason. I kind of like it. Very primal. Yeah, see, Luke in the chat agrees. I like to pee, yeah. Peeing feels great. Feels awful when you actually have to hold it in. No one likes that. But what do you do in the bathroom? Uh, this comes from Boss Man in the chat. Well, I either pee or go number two in the bathroom. I think that's, you know, what it's intended for. Might be pretty new to you. I'm not quite sure what you do in your bathroom, boss man. But you could definitely call in and tell me or, you know, chat with me here and everyone else. And that's one of the things that people won't understand once they listen to this on a replay on whatever network you happen to hear this on. You have to really come in here for the live experience. It's a lot more enjoyable for everyone out there. Gang of Four says, I love it, Michael. Same with many friends. Funny how guys always look for something to pee on. And Gang of Four, that's true. I happen to get myself in trouble plenty of times uh, peeing on things I wasn't supposed to. Either when really intoxicated or actually just when usually when I'm very intoxicated. And one of those stories that I've told here on the air plenty of times was one of the stories where I... Must have been at least 16 or 17 years old. And I was out in San Diego. And of course, I was drinking. Gotta be drinking when you're out there. Um, I went to a concert with a good friend of mine and we pre-gamed. And for those that don't know what that is, that's usually that means you drank quite a bit, quite a bit before you went to whatever event you were going to go to. And in this case, it was a concert. Me and my friend showed up pretty tore up my friends i believe i was drinking hmm during that during that time i i probably probably was drinking a 40 oh yeah believe i must have been killing a 40 around that time very cheap and straight to the point and during the concert i needed to pee really badly and i headed to, towards the bathroom and when i got there there was this huge line huge line that thing was backed up there was only one bathroom. Don't ask me why, but there were guys and girls all lined up. Yeah, boss man, I knew you would like well, I knew you would like this story, but it really doesn't have a happy ending. So, I need I need to pee so badly, guys. And there's a huge line, guys and girls all over the place. So, I went outside and I walked towards an alley. And once I got there, I saw a trash can, and I thought, you know, this seems like a pretty good spot to uh, piss. So I whip it out. 
behind that trash can, and it's dark, mind you. It's nighttime now, and I just start pissing away, folks. Oh, nothing, nothing unusual, nothing that no one else does. However, this is the strange part. Actually, was peeing on a homeless person. They were wrapped up in newspaper and I don't know what else. But after a couple seconds, I heard someone say, "Say, um, hey, what the, you know what, what the F word there. Pretty amazing. So I ran. I ran my ass out of there. I wasn't going to stick around for that. That was actually really messed up. Peeing on a homeless person, that's not nice. And I wish I could be making this story up, but I really did pee on a homeless person in San Diego, folks. I was pretty drunk and I didn't see this guy uh, sleeping away there. It was amazing, yeah. That happened. I, I wish that was a lie, folks, but holy hell, that did happen, so yeah. It wasn't, of course, like R. Kelly, who has plenty of experience, you know, peeing on girls. Gang of Four says, we have no homeless. Well, there's a lot of homeless here in California, Gang of Four. A whole lot. Especially here in El Centro. Lots of homeless people out here. Did you leave a trail while running? Actually, Luke, I finished peeing. It sort of, you know, sort of stopped my piss as soon as I heard him yell. F the homeless. Well, that's a pretty strong approach there. I don't think I really want to F the homeless people. I think they have it pretty bad. Gang of Four says at least it wasn't a number two on the homeless. And yeah, good lord. Bossman says, Michael, I'm no longer homeless, and you better hope I don't see you in San Diego again. <laughs> I apologize. I didn't know you were in the chat. I didn't mean to pee on you there. My apologies, my friend. You got to forgive me. I didn't mean to pee on you there. I was drunk. I was drunk. Oh, yeah. So, of course, we are on the final segment here of the program. Almost 10 o'clock out here on the West Coast. I'm not quite sure where... Some of you uh, uh, are out there in the East Coast, I suspect. Most of the listeners are from the East Coast. Gang of Four says, if I was homeless, I would get out of the city and into the woods. Yeah, there's a, quite a few homeless people out here in California who, who do just that. They live out in the woods. Luke, you're out there in Britain. Hmm. And you're out there in Kentucky. I, I really enjoyed your uh, spelling there, Vic, something in the chat room. Very, very, very funny. Very funny. And of course, this wouldn't be a program without some news from our friends in the 305. I got to talk about Florida, people. You know how I do it here. Got to mention Florida somehow. Florida man wanted a woman's egg rolls so bad it landed him in jail. Police say. Now that's a pretty amusing headline. Apparently this guy wanted this woman's uh, egg rolls so bad that this uh, tweaker guy actually tried getting his way in the house. I guess Chinese food is that damn good. Egg rolls. Hmm. I don't really eat that when I, when I eat Chinese food. For those that enjoy Chinese food out there. The egg rolls. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this guy really, really wanted it badly. And of course, cocaine arrives in Miami Beach. A whole lot of weight. And of course, that shouldn't be exactly that uncommon, being that it is Miami Beach, for God's sake. Florida plays no games either, by the way. Florida House panel approves guns for teachers. 
I should have brought that up to uh, Jim, but I uh, completely forgot. Does that sound right for you people out there in the chat? Florida House panel approves guns for teachers. That's going to in introduce a whole set of uh, problems now. A whole set of new problems now. World of Dreams, it's 12 in Texas. Gang of four, 1 a.m. in the East Coast. Yeah, pretty late out there. Bossman says, Ch uh, El Centro has good Chinese food. And you are right. Very good Chinese food out here. And going back to this gun law, or the um, approval of guns for teachers, uh, teachers would not be required to carry guns, but those who volunteer would have to undergo 144 hours of firearms training and possess a concealed weapon permit and pass both a psychological evaluation and drug test. Well, I think that's pretty, pretty standard. Pretty goddamn standard there. I don't see anything wrong with that. And yeah, Vic something mental evaluation. I'm not exactly sure who's going to pass the psych evaluation, especially being out there in Florida. That's going to be tough. Good luck to those teachers out there. And of course, I do have an email from a listener out there in the UK. He says, please. Actually, that's a different email. Oh, here's the right one. It says here, Michael, absolutely fantastic interview you've done with Benjamin. You, sir, are rocking. Much love from Robert. And here's another email here, but I'm just going to answer this one together. And again, thanks, Robert. Very, very nice of you from the UK. I appreciate you giving the episode a listen. Uh, these shows have been wildly uh, entertaining uh, to me personally. I know it won't be for everyone. Some won't like it and others will probably love it. Benjamin was a very interesting person to converse with. That's a Benjamin Fulford. If you have not heard that episode, I definitely recommend all of you out there uh, to go back and give that one a listen. It's pretty good. Pretty good. And Mona Alexis Presley, I believe uh, Jim mentioned you tonight. You got a bit of a, a shout out here tonight, and uh, thanks for listening to the program. Do appreciate that. And going back to what I just said, this show is not exactly for everyone. That's true. And that episode was not for everyone. That's why I like doing the show. It's not necessarily aimed towards anyone specific. I already know going into this that a lot of people are not going to like what I say or what the guest has to say. And furthermore, I get complaints all the time, either about something I said or something a, a guest said. And none of that really bothers me whatsoever. I just feel like I did my job. I got you to do some additional thinking, and it got you sort of flustered. That's kind of the goal here. Yes, Gang of Four, that's true. They will be on eventually. Yeah, Vic something says Star. Yeah, she'll be around. I think she's still around, actually. She hasn't called in, but she's here, don't worry. Vanessa, too. They all still listen, don't worry. They'll all be back eventually. And Luke, it's okay. You don't have to be active in the chat. It's totally fine. I just like the fact that people are listening. And actually, Vanessa is in the chat room. You can go ahead and say hi to her. I wasn't quite sure she was even in the chat room, but you summoned her and now she has appeared. Very, very cool. 
And another thing I forgot to mention, uh, going on this little rant here with you guys, another thing that people have been complaining about, well, not too often, just once in a while, uh, it was about Melania Trump, about something I said about her. No, I, I wasn't being mean or anything like that. I just had mentioned Melania Trump is a pretty good-looking older woman, that's all. And I said, jokingly, that I'd take her out. I mean, it was just a joke. But some, some I'm not sure if it was a guy or a girl, I'm not sure, I don't even remember. But they got up in arms about it for whatever reason. They didn't like that. And actually, there is another woman that I was going to mention to Jim, and, and to all of you out there as well. Uh, that was uh, Hope Hicks, who I think is a lot better looking than Melania Trump. Here, Here is an image for those that don't know who she is. Yes, that is Hope Hicks. For those that are in the chat room, there is a photograph of her. And look at that. You see, she's not a bad-looking woman at all. Hell, I wish we could have seen her a lot more. But unfortunately, we didn't. We were left with, uh, what's her name? Sarah Sanders. Can you imagine? And of course, for those that don't know, former White House communications director Hope Hicks, who you have in the chat room here, photographed there boys and girls in the chat room. She has agreed to turn over documents requested by the House as a part of its investigation into whether President Trump and his administration have undermined the rule of law. Pretty interesting stuff. But yes, that is Hope Hicks, boys and girls. Definitely a pretty good-looking woman. And I'm sure I'll get complaints about this eventually from some listener out there. That's usually the way it goes. But yes, there she is. Indeed, boys and girls, pretty wild stuff. And here we are together again under pale moonlight, boys and girls. I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been pretty damn fun. I didn't exactly get a chance to go into more of the content I had uh, prepared for tonight. But we are running out of time. Looking at the clock here, yeah. About two minutes... And I have to wrap up. I feel bad. I want to continue here. But limitations, folks, I apologize greatly. If I go over, I'm going to upset some of the uh, network people out there. They're not going to like that. And a couple of um, couple of bad words slipped through here tonight. They're not exactly bad to me or you. But to those on various networks, I'm going to have to edit that some um, some of the profanity out. I know, it's a, it's a headache to do that, but yes, indeed, folks, I do want to thank Jim Fetzer for being a part of the program, and all of you in the chat room as well, thank you for hanging out with me here tonight. I appreciated it uh, greatly, goddamn. It was so fun. And of course, don't forget, Jim Fetzer's website, moonrockbooks.com. Amazing stuff. Really do appreciate him being here. And all of you out there, and believe me, we'll do it again very soon. I know, right? Cussing. Uh, how hacky is that, right? The fact that I have to edit things out here, it's completely retarded. I, I might even have to edit that part out. But yeah. Oh, it's a headache, folks. I, I hate it. I don't like being censored. But you gotta play the game sometimes. You gotta play the game. And as we wind down, folks, much respect to our international listeners out there. 
in Germany, the UK, Spain, and Brazil. My goodness. And, of course, the Canadians out there, the wild Canadians. You've got to love the Canadians. Great people, really. Like, damn Canadians. Oh, yeah, the Canadians. Love them. And, of course, Brazil. Got to love the Brazilians, too. And the Germans, Guten Morgen. Love all of you out there. And, of course, deprogrammed radio coming right up. And you boys and girls in the chat room, really appreciate you guys being here. Keep in mind, if you enjoy the program and want to help fund this program, I would appreciate it if you did. Please go to michaeldeacon.com, right-hand side of the screen. There is a donation button. Please don't hesitate. Help me keep the lights on. As always, tonight was fun. Thank you, chat room, for the entertainment as well. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody.